0: The court, la cour.
1: Thank you. Good morning to all. In the case of Peace River Hydro Partners et al. against Petro West Corporation et al. For the appellants, Peace River Hydro Partners et al. David De Groot, Joanne Lou, Robert Martz, Alison Scott.
2: For the intervener, the Canadian Commercial Arbitration Center, Laurent Debrun and Charles Coté de la Grave.
1: Lisa C. Munro and Cynthia B. Keel. For the intervener, Chartered Institute of Arbitrators Canada Inc., Christina Doria, Michael Nowina, and Brendan O'Grady. For the intervener, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Anthony Damesis. For the respondents, Petro West Corporation et al., Kelsey Meyer, Ciara McKay, or Ciara McKay, Stephanie Clark, and Paul Romaniak. For the intervener, Insolvency Institute of Canada, Kibben Jackson, Tom Pausiniak and Len Nesbitt.
3: Mr. De Groot. Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, Chief Justice and Justices of the Court, this appeal addresses the question of whether a receiver who chooses to pursue contractual claims that include arbitration agreements must pursue those claims through arbitration. The appellate submit that pursuant to Section 15 of BC's Arbitration Act, the receiver's claims are required to be pursued by arbitration, and that is because, as my colleague Ms. Liu will address, the receiver is a party to the arbitration agreements, and as I will address, the receiver cannot disclaim the arbitration agreements either to avoid being a party or to render those agreements void, inoperative, or incapable of being performed, and I will also be responding to uh, the alleged grounding policies of the respondents in the IIC to suggest that insolvency law provides this court with the discretion to uh, hold those agreements inoperative or incapable of being performed. At this time, I will pass this matter to Ms. Liu. Good
4: morning, Justices. As my colleague noted, I'm here to speak to the issue of whether Ernst & Young is a party to the arbitration agreements under Section 15 of the Arbitration
5: Act. Mr. Soule, Mrs. Mrs. I'm sorry to interrupt you at the beginning. This is a question maybe I should have asked to Mr. De Groot, but you can answer. Uh, is it your position that uh, in all matters where uh, there are or there is an arbitration agreement, uh, arbitration should always go ahead? even if uh, we may be in a situation of receivership or in bankruptcy?
4: We say that when the receiver or trustee is suing on the, uh, under, uh, on the agreements and it contains a mandatory arbitration clause, then in those instances, um, yes, the arbitration agreement should govern. Thank you. But not all instances. Not, not all instances? Not all instances of um, a, a, uh, a matter, uh, uh, being a, a bankruptcy matter. Okay, thank you.
6: But is, is your uh, position uh, restricted only to when the receiver is suing? What happens when the receiver is being sued?
4: Well, when the receiver is uh, being sued, I understand that there is a uh, mandatory uh, stay of enforcement against uh, the insolvent parties, and so the issue doesn't arise. Um, we submit justices that, uh, that, would that
7: stay, would that stay, um, apply when the receiver is sued in arbitration? Uh,
4: yes. Yes, I believe it would.
7: So you're proposing an asymmetric rule, uh, basically, uh, uh an arbitration is stayed if the receiver is sued, but if the re- receiver is suing, uh, it cannot, uh, stay the arbitration.
4: Uh, Yes, Justice, but there's a principled uh, reason behind that asymmetry. Um, In the first instance, it's by operation of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act that stays, um, that the state operates. Whereas in our case, uh, what we submit is that the arbitration agreement governs and there's no principle in law that allows um, a receiver who is suing to take the benefit of that contract and, and nullify the burdens. And so we submit. So,
8: so just to be clear, um, it,
4: it,
8: where the receiver is sued, that is resolved by reference to bankruptcy law. Uh, but if if uh, the receiver sues, uh, that is resolved by reference to arbitration law. Uh,
4: y- yes, um, and uh, just justice's um, this asymmetry asymm- that we speak of, um, this actually arose in the sixth. 8-1 case, um, and uh, chance that's at tab 15 of our condensed book. And and here, I think uh, this highlights the asymmetry. Um, At paragraph 29, um, it states, while at first glance, the principle is certainly an appealing argument, for the plaintiff and relevant to the discussion here, when one reviews Reliance, um, Reliance deals with the opposite situation to the present case. And what uh, the case in Reliance dealt with is where the uh, insolvent company was being sued. Um, And then uh, the court goes on to say, a party to an arbitration agreement attempted to take arbitration proceedings against the bankrupt corporation. Sorry, I should have just read because the case goes on to explain. Of course, arbitration proceedings were stayed in the way that all actions or proceedings are stayed against a bankrupt corporation. In the present case, it is a bankrupt corporation which wishes to take a legal proceeding which is the opposite situation. Trustees routinely commence actions on behalf of the states under appropriate conditions. Actions or proceedings by trustees and the states states they administer are not stayed. And that's the situation we have here. And in in this- What happens when there's
1: a- Sorry, Chief. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Justice Jamal. Uh, Just one question, Ms. Liu. Do you make a difference between the status of a receiver and a trustee in bankruptcy? Does that matter?
4: Uh, well, it matters in the sense that the, uh, there are diff- the different legal mechanisms, different operations of law make them a party, but in both instances, in this case, they are party. For
1: but I was under the impression that the receiver was, um, was acting for the debtor uh, and was not a third party, just a bit like the liquidator under the Winding Up Act who's not a trustee, who's not trusting bankruptcy, the liquidator will continue the personality of, of the debtor. Uh, same thing, the receiver will continue the, the personality of the debtor. Is that the same reasoning?
4: Uh, yes, it is the same reasoning. So our submissions uh, with respect to why the trustee is a party is because the action vests by the operation of Section 71 bankruptcy act. Moving on to why um and y uh, in its capacity as receiver, is also a party. Um, i just ask you, it, uh, Ms. To- oh,
7: yeah. Ms. Lou, just the asymmetric rule that you were propounding. Sure. Uh, pres- presumably, if there's also uh, a counterclaim by the non-insolvent uh, person or the party's not subject to a receiver, that would also be stayed, presumably, by virtue of bankruptcy. So. Um, it's either it's either um, it would apply to counterclaims too, presumably, right?
4: It would apply to counterclaims. Uh, in this case, I don't believe there is a counterclaim. Okay. Um, and perhaps just to respond to the uh, the prior question about uh, the receiver and how it becomes a party um, in our submission by operation of law, I think it's important to. Uh, start at the starting point and and from my perspective, it's uh, two things happen when a party enters into receivership. The first is that the receiver takes over management of the business and the prior management is paralyzed from acting. But uh, unlike a trustee in bankruptcy, legal title to the debtor's assets don't vest in the receiver. Uh, They pursue the action on behalf of the debtors. Um, and it sues in the name of the debtors. And these propositions are highlighted by Professor Wood at tab 20 of our condensed book. Both propositions are highlighted at page 514, but I'll, I'll pause on the first one um, because I think it's the most relevant. It says the appointment of a receiver does not have any effect on the debtor's ownership of its assets. Unlike a tr- Unlike a bankruptcy, there is no automatic vesting of the debtor's assets in the receiver. The receiver, therefore, has no right to bring an action in his or her name in respect of the debt owed to the debtor. The action is properly brought by the receiver in the name of the debtor, since the cause of action does not vest in the receiver." And Justice in the Milton Vale Park decision, the Prince Edward Island Court of Appeal considered what it means when the receiver acts in the name of the debtor. As pr- Professor Wood states, um, and it says it steps into the shoes of the insolvent company. So, if you'll turn with me to our condensed book, Tab Five, starting at paragraph one fourteen, you'll see they know there does exist judicial interpretation of the phrase "act in the name of," albeit it, this is in the law of receivership.
8: J- just before and we get there, will you be will you be taking us to the to the order appointing the receiver?
4: Yes, of course. Um
8: It seems to me that I mean you, you you'll 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 argue how you argue, but 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 it's I, I would think the terms of the order are a good starting point.
5: I
4: believe so too, Justice Brown. Perhaps I could uh finish uh, concluding here and then very uh, I'll take you to the sure, receivership order next. Um because I think they tie together. And um What this court concludes is that it can be seen that a receiver steps into the shoes of the insolvent company. The receiver acts in substitution for the suspending operating mind of the body corporate to carry out court-approved corporate acts. And in this case, we say a receiver should be considered a party to the arbitration agreements for four reasons. Um, And I'd like to take you to the receivership order at tab 17. Justice Brown? We say by the operation of this receivership order, the receiver took over control and management of the business from the debtors, who, as you've heard, are paralyzed from acting, and they step into the shoes of the operating mind. And you'll see at paragraph three, it lists all of their powers. They can take possession and exercise control of the property. Um, See, they can manage and operate and carry on the business of the debtors. And if you go to... J, which is highlighted on page four, um, they have the power to initiate, prosecute, um, and continue proceedings on behalf of the debtor companies.
5: So, Ms. 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 Lowe, you are referring us to Section 3J, but uh, what about 3F, when it says that uh, the receiver has the power to receive and collect all monies and accounts now owed or here after owing to the debtors and to exercise all remedies of the debtors. Yes. So is okay. it a relevant uh, uh, section for what we have to decide this morning?
4: Well, it's, it's part of their uh, powers, um, but it doesn't change that even though they have the power to collect these funds, um, these funds, just like the cause of action are not vested in them. Um, and instead what they're doing is um, just receiving the monies and then at the end
5: distributing to to uh, secure creditors. Um, but all remedies of the debtors, does it not mean that they can exercise the remedies of the debtors no more, no less?
4: Exactly, Ex- exactly Justice Cote. Um, And that is my point, is that when they commenced um, action and sued, they relied solely on the debtor's contractual rights. Um, And when they sued on the contract, it includes the whole of the agreement. They can't pick and choose and just um, extract out and choose not to rely on the arbitration agreement. And and we say, Justice Cote, that the style of cause is also telling because it names all of the debtors and makes it clear that the receiver is only acting on their behalf. And for these reasons, we say that by operation of the receivership order, the receiver became a party to the debtors' arbitration agreements under Section 15. Ms. Um, Ms.
9: Liu, could I ask you just to follow Oh, sorry. Ju- no, go i just ahead. like to follow up on Justice Cote's question. The, the, is it relevant where we are in the performance of the contract? If it's an executory contract that's been performed on one end and, and uh, the receiver has what is for all intents and purposes uh, an asset. Um, uh, Is that that relevant to the analysis? Uh,
4: We we don't think it is relevant uh, because at this point, we would say that they don't have an asset. They have a cause of action that needs to be proved. Um, in court and the way that they're going to try to obtain that asset, um, that contingent asset, um, is by bringing this action under these agreements and they can have no better rights than the debtors. And so that what comes along is the arbitration
10: agreement. But just but to Monsieur, follow up on the, that question, because I was going to ask if, um, if there is a counterclaim for specific performance, for example, for another aspect of that, um, agreement. Uh, what's the result then?
4: Well, I mean, there, there right now isn't a counterclaim and there isn't a counterclaim no, but, for but specific we, performance. But, but, but,
10: but we have to interpret this to make sense, this provision, to cover the cases where there may be a counterclaim and there may be a counterclaim for specific performance. And my question is, is the receiver uh, subject to that? Um, what happens to the counterclaim in terms of the stays? How do we interpret this in a way that is coherent?
4: Uh, The counterclaims would, in our position, be stayed, including um, claims for specific performance. Um, and, And that's just by operation, we say, of insolvency laws.
10: So it would result in a situation where some of the terms of the agreement would apply and some would not? Uh,
4: uh, No, um, uh, perhaps a a better way to answer the question um, is is to look at who is bringing those rights. I think the law is clear that as against the insolvent company, um, uh, they, they are protected from claims against them. And so it's only when they are bringing a claim um, that this matters. And if, um, my uh, justice, if you could turn with me, uh, to the ABN case, and if and that is found, um, at Tab Fourteen of our authorities. Um, ABN was a case where um, the bank um, was assigned assigned a contract, it became an assignee um, to a contract that sought to enforce with an arbitration agreement. Um, and it sought to say that it wasn't a party because it wasn't a signatory to those agreements. And at paragraph 15, uh, the court rejects that argument and says ABN is in law, a party to the arbitration agreement. It is a fundamental and I think universal commercial legal principle that an assignor is not entitled to divide that which is assigned amongst assignees so as to convey the benefits and nullify the burdens. Thus a person seeking to enforce assigned rights under an agreement can do so um, subject, can only do so subject to the terms and the conditions embodied therein. And uh, we say, justices, that that passage and that principle of law is particularly apt in this case, where it is the receiver that's choosing to bring a cause of action um, on the
5: basis of, of these contracts. It has to take the agreement as a whole. What Peace do you Lou, say? I would like to follow on the uh, Justice Cazierre's question about if uh, there are no, bo- no more obligations to be performed uh, under the contract. You said that... Uh, if I understood you properly that it's not relevant. Is it not relevant for the, to see if the receiver has the power to disclaim the contract? In other words, if there are still obligations to be performed by Petro West Air, the receiver would have the right to disclaim the contract, but if there are no more obligations to be performed, uh, is it not relevant to consider that to determine if there is a disclaimer power, if I can say so here? Yes, Justice Coté, Um, if there were still obligations left to be
4: performed, then certainly the receiver has the power to disclaim. Our position is just that there's no power of partial disclaimer. They have to disclaim the contract as a whole or enforce upon or take and perform it as a whole.
7: What about, uh, since we're in the receivership order, what about uh, paragraph 3C, which uh, allows the receiver to cease to perform any contracts of the debtor? The right to arbitrate is a substantive contractual right uh, that's well established and uh, one could say that the uh, receiver is prima facie bound and if it chooses to pursue arbitration it can, but it also has in this standard term uh, the power to cease to perform the contract.
4: Right. And I, I think that goes uh, to the question, though, of whether or not the arbitration agreement is truly a separate contract and it goes to the doctrine of separability and how it's applied. It can cease to um, uh, perform the arbitration contract, but we have to remember the arbitration contract lies within the underlying agreement, so they need to be taken together. Um, the, B- BC oh. cor- uh, the B.C. Court of Appeal invoked the doctrine of separability to say we can separate them so that you can disclaim one but not the other. But um, as you'll hear from my colleague, Mr. Groot, the doctrine of separability doesn't work that way.
7: I don't think it's a separability question. The uh, contract can be entirely uh, non-executory. All the, obli- all the other obligations could have been performed. But given that the uh, it, it, given the power to cease to perform any contracts of the debtor, that could be then the only remaining obligation. It doesn't mean it's uh, it's uh, it's null, inoperative, or incapable of being performed. It simply means that the receiver has exercised the court-appointed power to cease to perform the contract, the remaining obligation to arbitrate. Uh,
4: right, but I think in this case, though, then um, uh, respectfully, uh, they, um, what we have here though, is that we are not talking about um, uh, the the concept of of uh, adoption and disclaimer. Uh, really comes up uh, as you say in the notion of executory context, and it it matters because it um, it matters as to whether or not the receiver will have personal liability for those contracts. But that's not what we're. Um, doing here, I think how we, we are framing the issue um, is that they're suing on these contracts, and so when they sue, they have to take the
5: contract as a whole. But In isn't, fact, Miss You, oh, go ahead, Justice mm, Rule. No, but uh.
0: isn't is is not the key to all this what you're you seem to be implicitly saying, and it may be Mr. De Groot who's going to address this, that it is not within the uh, authority of the supervising judge to say this arbitration will not proceed having regard to the 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 proper uh uh uh, uh, conduct of the insolvency this arbitration will not proceed and 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 isn't that the key what is the authority of the supervising judge vis-a-vis these agreements
4: That's right, Justice Rowe. Um, And you're right on two counts. I I agree with uh, your characterization of the law and also that my um, colleague, Mr. DeGroote, will address
5: that point more fulsomely. Uh, Ms. Liu, I have a question. Going back to that disclaimer issue, the Court of Appeal here uh, said that the receiver had implicitly disclaimed uh, the arbitration agreement by initiating the, the claim in the civil court. But what do we do with the fact that in his, in his submissions, the receiver says, I never, dis- never disclaim the contract or the arbitration agreement? That's correct. And, and we, we understand that that is the
4: fact that they didn't disclaim. And so our submission is that they are a party, section 7, uh, 15 sub 2, Governs, and there is nothing void, inoperative, or incapable of being performed about the arbitration agreement. And so, perhaps I'm I'm just looking at my time. Um, I if I I would like to address the um, respondent's argument that the Arbitration Act does not define a party as including a person claiming through and under, um, and therefore the receiver is not a party. Perhaps I could just touch on that very briefly. Um, Implicit in the respondent's interpretation uh, is the premise that only a signatory can be a party, so everyone else is claiming through and under that party. But we submit that the interpretation of the word party is not that narrow. Uh, We say it includes trustees and receivers who become bound uh, to the arbitration agreement by operation of law. Um, And... Uh, I have two authorities for this. One is the Kaveritt-Steele decision. It's an Alberta Court appeal case at tab three of our authorities. It makes clear that the concept of party is broad enough on its own to capture non-signatories bound by operation of law or submission of contract. Uh, You find that at uh, paragraph 15, uh, when the court states, associated and connected parties like subsidiaries, shareholders, directors, employees, agents, and the like, might be required to join an arbitration one of three ways. By the governing law, by the submission itself, and to the extent the parties to the contract can bind other parties or by later agreement, the other parties. But they go on to find that none of these apply here. And in that case, it uh, was about shareholders and subsidiaries that sought to be bound. Um, and it's only at that point when they say that um, they don't meet these three tests that the court considers well is there additional through or under language in the arbitration act to capture what the court referred to as these extra parties and found that there was none and so we say that this case demonstrates that a party includes non-signatories bound by operation of law and that you don't need the term a party claiming through or under um, because that refers to someone outside that and I just want to. May I
6: just interject here and ask you that, that, but within BC's own legislation, in the International Commercial Arbitration Act, they do use the through and under law. So could you uh, sort of explain to us the implications, if any, of uh, a different usage in um, a, a, an act that has a similar content?
4: Sure. Um, uh, I have two responses uh, for you, Justice Martin. Um, the first is if you turn to condensed book, uh, tab 21, um, you'll see that Casey actually um, considers my friend's argument that only signatories can be considered a party. And th- so the through and under language has to be required to bind non signatories. Um, and you'll find that at page 71, I apologize, it's not highlighted. Um, But right after the introduction of the ABN case, uh, Brian Casey writes, in this case, a contract including an arbitration agreement was assigned to a bank as security. He goes on to say, uh, Justice Halley held in these circumstances, the bank was not a party to the arbitration, as where an arbitration agreement is in writing, it must be signed by the parties and the word party did not include a person claiming through or under a party. On appeal to the divisional court, the decision was overturned on the legal principle that an assignor is entitled, is not entitled to d- divide that which is assigned amongst his assignees so as to convey the benefits and nullify its burdens. And um, I also would uh, bring this court's attention to the uh, Mossmo, uh case. It's not in our condensed book uh, but it is at tab uh, 38 of the appellant's authorities and the reason why that's relevant is that that is a case out of the bc uh, arbitration act um, and in that case an assigning to agreement was found uh, to be a party notwithstanding that there was no through or under language um, and that is at uh, paragraphs 18 and 42. Um, I'd like to conclude my submissions now and turn the mic over to uh,
5: Mr. Groot now. Ms. Lou, oh, Ms. Lou, I have a question for you before you go. <laughs> sure. Uh, the, actu- uh, the section 15 of the arbitration agreement, which governs this case, says at the beginning, a party to an arbitration agreement. Uh, it has been amended. Now it is section seven and it begins a party Uh, If a party commences legal proceedings, uh, is there any uh, argument to draw from the fact that Section 15 is saying a party to an arbitration agreement and the new Section 7 says a party commences legal proceedings? uh no um
4: in in an article written by independent arbitrator uh, tina cicetti and uh, senior legal counsel to the bc ministry johnson uh found at tab 75 of our materials um they look into that section and say that it's a housekeeping matter only and okay. the re- reason why it matters is because um they are um, They were part of the committee that made recommendations to the Attorney General for the amendments into this 2020 Act. Thank
11: you.
1: Mr. De Groot?
11: Yeah,
3: thank you. Just changing the mics over. Um, I'm going to start just briefly um, by addressing the insolvency matters given some of the questions that were raised here Um, and in particular, just to start with uh, the proposition, uh, with respect to the asymmetry, there will necessarily always be an asymmetry in claims by and against the estate of insolvent party. In particular, any claim against an insolvent party is stayed. In this case, it's stayed by operation of section eight of the receiving order, which in the c- you can find that at the condensed book of authorities at tab 17. And again, that's section eight of that. Um, And so there's always going to be this asymmetry of claims against it, but from a bankruptcy and insolvency perspective, there's a policy rationale behind that. And that policy rationale that the court relies upon is what's known as the single proceeding model. And we can see authority for that in the description of that at the Century Services decision. And I'd have you turn to tab 11 of the condensed book of authorities of the appellates. Um, This is the Century Services decision. Again, it's tab 11 of the condensed book at paragraph 22. And I'm gonna be starting at the second or third sentence in beginning the nature. Um, So at this paragraph, the court writes, the nature and purpose of the single proceeding model are described by Professor Wood in bankruptcy and insolvency law. They all provide a collective proceeding that supersedes the usual civil process available to creditors to enforce their claims. That's the important part to enforce. The creditor's remedies are collectivized in order to prevent the free-for-all that would otherwise prevail if creditors were permitted to exercise their remedies. In the absence of a collective process, each creditor is armed with the knowledge that if they do not strike hard and swift to seize the debtor's assets, they will be beat out by other creditors. The single proceeding model avoids the inefficiency and chaos that would attend insolvency if each creditor initiated proceedings to recover the debt. And so what the important part about this is that in short the single proceeding model addresses a collective action problem which is colloquially known as the tragedy of the commons but that policy position simply has no application when a receiver is seeking to pursue claims outside of the estate in this case the question is simply how are those actions to be proceeded with are they be proceeded with by litigation or by arbitration.
0: And why is that not subject to the authority of the supervising judge? Is that not part and parcel of the, of the, of the proper uh, realization of the assets plus the efficient um, uh, resolution of all these matters? You're saying there's a curve out. There's a curve out from the authority of the supervising judge where uh, a receiver initiates a claim against uh, a contractual party and the the contract contains an arbitration clause, the the, the logic of your position is, if I've understood it, it is beyond the competence, beyond the authority of the uh, supervising judge to say, no, that will not proceed by way of arbitration, it will proceed in another
3: manner. So, Justice Roy, I think if I uh, understand the question that our position in, in responding to that is that the reason why a supervising insolvency court would not have um, the jurisdiction to pull that into the single p- proceeding model is because there simply is no jurisdiction in the statute. In this case, by citing the single control Which statute, Which yeah, statute? The, the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, and I'll, and I'll take you there. So, my friends have suggested that this policy objective of the single proceeding model and efficiency. Um, and efficacy are the underlying reasons to allow this. The sections they cite of the BIA to ground that jurisdiction in order to exercise that discretion are in sections 243 and sections 183 of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. Um, And in that regard, I'm going to begin just with section 183. Section 183 of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act is simply it has a limited purpose and what the purpose is is that it invests superior courts with the jurisdiction of law and equity as will allow them to exercise jurisdiction in bankruptcy and other proceedings under the BIA and superior courts as superior courts have an inherent jurisdiction but that cannot be used to overturn statute which in this case the arbitration act includes mandatory language that limits the ability of the superior court to exercise its inherent jurisdiction hang
0: on you've said inherent jurisdiction 183 sub 1 says original auxiliary and ancillary jurisdiction yes. it does not say inherent jurisdiction and i would treble underline original jurisdiction
3: yes and and at the at the it's our submission and this is in the Baxter decision from this court as well, that the jurisdiction granted by, these, by this provision is subject to statutory limitations, which includes the Arbitration Act that includes mandatory language requiring the matter to proceed to arbitration.
0: So the, so the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act is subject to the provincial jurisdiction. That's your submission.
3: I, I think the best way to look at that is that the, um, is if we look at the decision um, of GMAC versus TCT, I think, and that's at tab 13 of the condensed book of authorities. And, and this is actually in relation more to the section 243 submission, but it, it has equal application to section 183. Um, that, just to give some background here, section 243, which is also relied on by the respondents and the IIC to ground a jurisdiction to do this, um, is a similar section to what is formerly section, well, it, it, it's section two c And in this case, um, Justice Abella formerly of this court stated at paragraph 51 if the net if the section 47 net were interpreted widely enough to prevent permit interference with all rights which though protected by law represent an inconvenience to the bankruptcy process it could be used to distinguish extinguish all provincial employment rights if the bankruptcy court thinks it's quote advisable under section 472c explicit language would be required before such a sweeping power could be attached to section 47 in the face of the preservation of provincially created civil rights in but but what, what said, if we're not pr- talking what if we're not talking about an inconvenience
12: what if we're talking about a significantly significant compromise of the objectives of the bankruptcy act and in fact if i understand the trout the the um application judges reasons that's precisely the basis upon which he said although he was doing it under 183 not 240 sorry he was doing it under um uh, one as opposed to 243 but that, that's precisely what he spent about three pages of decision discussing and saying, in the particular circumstances of this case, this this uh, power that I have, which should only be used exceptionally, uh, should be used here. Because otherwise, if we get into four different arbitrations and so on and so forth, this thing is going to go into a black hole, and we'll never get this decided. Th- those are my words, not his. Or hers, I mean.
3: Thank you, Justice Moldaver. And with okay. respect to the
12: chambers sorry system. my point very simply is that language that you just took us to says inconvenience speaking for myself we're not talking about inconvenience here we're talking about something that can throw the whole purpose and and the the main objectives of the bankruptcy act into chaos that's what we're talking about
3: and, and Justice just I think that the important part here is that the in, in moving on, like with respect to the quote is that explicit language would be required before such a sweeping power could be attached to section 47 in the face of the preservation of provincially created civil rights in section 72. Right, so but what
0: they're talking about is successor rights for unions. Yeah, exactly. Successor rights yeah. for unions, of yeah. a completely different nature, as opposed Re- to how much money you owe.
3: And Justice Rowe, what they're that case on its facts is speaking about successor rights in relation to un- unions, but the principle that it's being expounded in this case is that through section 72 and the preservation of provincially created civil rights, those are protected through the BIA and that explicit language would be required to, to overturn that. I'd, I'd also just like to point out that there's not, there's, it, it would not throw the system of insolvency law with, in, in my submission into chaos. Um, There are provisions within arbitration agreements that allow for consolidation and arbitration can actually be conducted in a more efficient manner by doing things such as limiting rights of...
0: I'm going to follow on here. What you're saying is the remedy to any practical problems in the nature that Justice Moldaver has indicated is to go to the arbitrator and seek to have the arbitrator organize things in a more efficient way as opposed to the supervising judge saying I'm going to make certain orders which will cause uh matters overall in an integrated way to be to be handled in an efficient way what you're saying is jettison the single control model and carve out an area which is a no-go area for the supervising judge the the, the, the the supreme authority is to be the arbitrator, not the supervising judge under the single control model. It seems to me that's absolutely at the heart of your submissions.
12: And if I could just interrupt, too, just yeah. to add to this what my colleague just said, uh, in, in kind of in response to what you just said about... You know there is provision in the Arbitration Act for the parties to agree to consolidate and so on, but it talks about all the parties to those agreements agree. So we we would need we would need to have the consent of uh, the other uh, of of um, uh, your client number one, and also there is suggestion here that there are some issues that aren't some things that are to be collected that aren't bound by arbitration agreement. So I don't know where they go in all of this, but they would, it seemed to me, not be part of this scheme that you have in mind, and they'd have to be settled separately in an action. I mean, you got to look at the whole picture here and all the circumstances. And the trial judge or the application judge, in her wisdom, said, hey, this is going to be a mess and by the way it causes no prejudice to your client to have this done in the court so i this is what's troubling me in this whole thing and if the trial, if the application judge had that authority it's ex, it's an exercise of discretion and it seems to me you have a quite a road to hold to overruled to get that overruled
3: with with res, with respect we submit that there is no uh, discretion that allows the court to overturn the Arbitration Act. With respect to the the scheme of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, this is a matter in which there is no relief that is related to the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. And that's an important consideration. In, in In the decision of Sam Levy, which is at tab 12 of our condensed book, And looking at paragraph 39, so this is tab 12 of the condensed book, The Sam Levy Decision, paragraph 39. The court says, there are limits, of course. If the trustee's claim is in relation to a stranger to the bankruptcy, i.e. persons or matters outside of the act, or lacks the complexion of a matter in bankruptcy, it should be brought in the ordinary civil courts and not the bankruptcy court. And then the court goes on at paragraph 50 to say, it is well established that the bankruptcy court does not have the general jurisdiction of a civil court to award damages in breach of contract cases. And so what we're submitting is this action has already been asserted as a separate action outside of the insolvency. Yeah, but it, goes,
12: but it goes to the bankruptcy state. How, how much is there going to be to distribute amongst the secured creditors and, and, and whatever? I mean it's integral for the trustee to know what the estate is and what's in it and this trustee is of the view that it's worth pursuing these matters so how can you say that this isn't related to the bankruptcy
3: well when the court in the sam levy decision states that it's related to the bankruptcy what the court is saying is and this it goes on in paragraph 50 it states it is restricted to the jurisdiction and remedies contemplated by the act and so what the act provides is for a series of provisions for the distribution of assets it does not address nor does it have any mechanism to address how matters should be dealt with when pursuing claims in so fact, if f- sorry if in fact the trustee collects 10 million dollars on behalf of
12: um uh, petro west uh, what, the bankruptcy proceedings will already be conducted and finished and everything because it really doesn't matter. That $10 million is going to go
3: where? Well, it will go into the estate. That well, of is course a- it will.
12: Of yes. course it will. So to say that it's disconnected from what the bankruptcy proceeding is all about is, with respect, the submission that
9: I, I just find it amazing. And isn't it true, just to follow up on Justice Muldever's preoccupation. Isn't it true that the Sam Levy case that you cite has been interpreted in the arbitration setting to allow for the exercise of discretion one way or the other? I'm thinking of Quebec jurisprudence cited cited by the intervener Centre Canadien d'Arbitrage Commercial, the ETI uh, re-ETI case of the Quebec Court of Appeal where they, After looking at the weighing that Justice Moldaver alludes to, they came down on the side of arbitration. It looked like it would be, as you suggested earlier, Mr. De Groot, a circumstance where that would be efficient and helpful. And then another case, a leading case uh, decided by Justice Gascon when he was on the Superior Court in uh, in uh, Avestor, where he said, no, it's it was... Sufficiently complicated, and there's a weighing of circumstance. He took into account stability of contracts and freedom of contractual freedom that would support your v- view. He took into account the concerns that Justice Moldaver mentioned. He weighed them, and he did it under the, under the, under the authority as Justice Rowe suggested of, of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. So Sam Levy doesn't look like a, bl- a blocking the way, uh, on the contrary.
3: Well, I think that in relation to Sam Levy, the case, it, it relates to whether the relief or whether what is being pursued um, is, res- is within the jurisdiction and remedies contemplated by the act. And in this case, what is being used are the rules of court right now um, to advance this matter. And so they don't, there, there's no relief that arises under the act, other than the fact that through this act, there's no relief under the act to be clear there what will occur and what I don't dispute is if there is a successful action, those, those funds will go into the estate. With respect to the uh, ETI decision, uh, that decision did find that the matter should proceed by arbitration. Um, and some of the other uh, cases cited by my friends though, to rely upon the single control model, typically are cases that involve claims against the estate or involve issues of the stay against the estate. I, I don't, the Reliance decision, the Smoky River decision. But the, the purpose of the of a receivership and and the grounding of authority in Section 183, as well as in Section 243, does not contain any express language. And in fact, that is why we already see that the action is proceeding as litigation and not as arbitration. But
5: Mr. But De Groot, Mr. De Groot, on that jurisdiction issue, you say that the court has no uh, discretion at all to... Uh, to determine whether insolvency or arbitration proceedings are to be given priority. You seem to say that in all situations, uh, arbitration proceedings should be given priority. But what about the following? Section 15 gives a court the power to uh, say that the clause is null and void or inoperative. It is there in Section 152. So the court has the power, not the receiver, not the arbitrator, it is the power of the court to determine if the clause let's say is inoperative in the present instance. That coupled with the jurisdiction uh, of 243 because 243 of course it it talks about the powers to be given to the receiver but it is essentially a determination by the court about what the receiver can do and cannot do. So if we combine uh, section 15.2 and 243, is it not the very strong basis for a court to determine if in a specific case, priority should be given to arbitration proceedings as opposed to proceeding in a civil court. I'm not talking about the determination of this case, but on the law. Are you saying that a court does not have jurisdiction?
3: So what I would say is under the Arbitration Act with respect to Section 152 and the language of void, inoperative and incapable of being performed, the court does have a jurisdiction under that Provincial Act to decide whether or not an arbitration agreement is void, inoperative or incapable of being performed. But the important part is that with respect to the interpretation of that phrase void, inoperative and incapable of being performed that has an interpretation that exists within the statutory intention of the Arbitration Act, which is to preserve space for arbitration. And what I'll take you to there is this idea.
0: I don't think there's any question about void because that would mean that ab initio was Mm. ineffective. It's really, I think the action here is inoperative and inoperative by virtue of an order of a judge under the BIA. In other words, it's, it's, it's not capable of being enforced because the judge says it's not capable of being enforced, which I come back to the point. The crux of your position, it seems to me, is an order of that nature is not within the authority of the judge under the BIA. If it is, you lose. If if, if that's beyond the competence or the authority of the judge, maybe you win. Yeah.
3: Justice Roe, I think that's correct, that our position is that neither Section 243 nor Section 183 ground this jurisdiction. The jurisdiction defined it, and I agree as well that this is not a question of a void, it's a question of potential inoperativeness, and in that respect, what I would have you turn to is the Seidel decision um, at Tab 7 of the Condensed Book of Authorities. And this is um, the decision of Justices Labelle and Deschamps um, in dissent, but not on this point at paragraph 118. Here they state, it is clear that the task of the court responsible for considering whether whether the agreement is void, inoperative or incapable of being performed, cannot properly be construed so broadly as to authorize it to determine whether a class action would be a preferable procedure. And then just skipping ahead, The arbitration agreement would as a result be subject to the whim of the party wanting to avoid its application more specifically the word inoperative cannot be interpreted so broadly that a mere procedural decision of a party seeking to certify a class proceeding would suffice for that party to avoid the operation of the agreement to arbitrate and so and this is also then built upon in the Wellman decision, which is at... Well, top- just,
12: just before we go to Wellman, I mean, again, you're using a mere procedural thing. Why don't we look at the reasons of the application judge here at paragraph 60 of her reasons? And if you go to about the fifth, fourth line or fifth line of her reasons, the difference in the cost and time involved of prosecuting the claimant court as compared to the multiple arbitration proceedings is substantial. The bankruptcy order was made in April, 2018, which by the way, here we are four years later, deciding what process to use. That's my interjection. It will not be possible to distribute the proceeds. I'm gonna emphasize that. It will not be possible to distribute the proceeds of the bankruptcy states until these disputes are resolved. I agree that the inherent jurisdiction court should be used sparingly. However, the significant cost and delay inherent in the multiple proceedings that would occur in this case as compared to judicial termination is unfair to the creditors, contrary to the objects of the BIA. The absence of any prejudice to the dependents is an important distinguishing feature. You know, there's all kinds of issues brought up in this case, but speaking for myself, it begins and ends there unless you can convince us as to your point that there's no authority for the supervising judge to do what she did
3: well sir with respect to the four years later and the inefficiency of trying to determine a procedure I, I would simply state that, you know, had the matters proceeded as arbitration, there's a good chance this would all be resolved anyways. And there's an underlying assumption in this that arbitration is inefficient, but with respect to the uh, the jurisdiction to do this, we maintain that that jurisdiction arises through the language of section 15.2 of the Arbitration Act and that the BIA does not provide a jurisdiction to do this.
7: I ask you, Mr. Uh, uh, De Groot, really, um i think this is being pitched I in mean, my senses this may be being pitched at an excessively high level of generality as a clash between arbitration and bankruptcy at the end of the day there's no dispute i take it that the uh, receivership order that was issued is granted under the court's authority under section 243 of the bankruptcy act interradia but certainly section 243 of the bankruptcy and insolvency act that is the basis upon which that is the T- the taking uh, any action that the court considers advisable it always remains under co- court supervision and 3c of the order specifically allows the receiver to cease to perform any contracts of the debtor when the con- when the receiver does that it is subject to court court supervision the court may des- my may decide actually you shouldn't be doing this but it's not the court deciding that the arbitration agreement is somehow evaporated it's simply, the debtor acting under the authority of a court order to cease to perform an obligation under a contract. And the court may decide that the receiver shouldn't be allowed to do that. So there's no absolute rule, but it it does ultimately come down to the granular. uh, And so there's no conflict between bankruptcy and arbitration. It's under the terms of the the act and the order.
3: Except in this case, what is happening here is that the receiver is embracing and pursuing the contractual claims while attempting to avoid the the arbitration clause that exists within those contracts and and the part of the we had just read Seidel and that that case stands that it's not a preference based approach but I'd like to just discuss briefly because this matter of the performance and the disclaimer has come up and I would just note that at the respondents brief at paragraph 81 they state repudiation or disclaimer of a contract does not destroy rights of action accrued as a result of prior breaches. And so that is where we are in this action is this is not necessarily a situation of disclaimer or adoption of the contract on a forward-looking performance basis. It's directed at the pursuit of historical actions that have already accrued. And in that regard, Bennett on receivership uh, has stated that a receiver can decide to pursue, they can decide to ignore, they can also just decide, they could decide to sell the causes of action. But this is not a case about disclaimer or adoption. It's a case about embracing and pursuing a cause of action. And in that regard, um, as my friend had made note of about the the picking and choosing of the benefits and burdens, a decision that has some relevance, it's in the U.S. context, it's the Griswold decision. So that's at tab 8 of the book of authorities, of, of the condensed book of authorities. And this is a decision in relation to a pure non-signatory, which even then does not apply. Um, it doesn't address the question of operation of law. But at page two, at page 273 of that decision, which is on the second page, and it's the highlighted portion in the right column, the court states, equitable estoppel thus prevents a non-signatory from cherry-picking the provisions of a contract that will ben- it will benefit from and ignoring other provisions that don't benefit or that would not that would pre- it would prefer not to be governed by, such as an arbitration clause. And then just moving to the last sentence, a non-signatory cannot knowingly embrace the contract, only to later turn its back on the provisions in the contract, such as an arbitration clause. And, and that's those, what are, those are matters that the
12: supervising judge will take into account in deciding whether or not to let the action proceed or to require the trustee to engage in arbitration it's a factor to take into account with respect
3: seems to me yeah. and, and i think that the factor to take into in with respect to the arbitra- the jurisdiction on this it arises under the arbitration act and the the we've we've re- repeatedly said the supervising judge in this case Justice Iyer of the BC Supreme Court was not sitting as a supervising judge. This case was already existing outside of any insolvency or receivership type of Mr. proceeding. De Groot,
5: I have a question for you. We, we know that after a receivership order is issued, uh, the receiver and anybody with an interest can come back to the court and file motions for directions. What about the following? Let's say that the receiver before launching the civil lawsuit would have filed a motion for directions under 243 of the bankruptcy act and ask the court, the judge, to say, please uh, declare the arbitration agreement inoperative because I want to launch a civil lawsuit. Do you think, in a circumstance like that, that the court would have had the power under 243 and 152 to say the clause, the arbitration agreement is inoperative, and yes, receiver. You can file your uh, claim in a civil court in the in in civil court instead of going to arbitration.
3: I, I think in that situation, section two forty three, which I haven't had a chance to discuss in detail, does not provide the jurisdiction to do that. The Lemare Lake logging decision. I'll just state: in that case, the court confirmed that the, the purpose of Section 243 is nar- simple and narrow, and it's the establishment of a regime allowing for the appointment of a national receiver. And then that also goes to the decision in GMAC versus TC- T- TCT around the, the language of advisable in subsection C, being subject to provincial jurisdiction through yeah, Section 72-
5: but 243 is the same language than Section 47 about the appointment of interim receivers. And I think one of the interveners, of the Insolvency Institute of Canada, is quoting some decisions in its factum to say that uh, there wa- it is the same language. And Section 47 has always been interpreted as giving very broad powers to the judge uh, in the bankruptcy court. So why should we not adopt the same uh, interpretation of for the language of 243, because it is exactly the same language in section 47.
3: Well, I think that with respect to section 243 sub 1 sub C, you are correct, it overlaps with 47 2 C. I just refer the court again, that it's subject to provincial jurisdiction. (laughs) Um, Though that had the receiver done what you suggested, that would be a more appropriate way to at least attempt to address this question. But in this case, we have an action that the receiver has obviously concluded exists outside of any relief under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. And that action should be subject to section 15.2. And the word inoperative does not relate to, the purpose of the statute does not allow for an interpretation of inoperative that would allow the receiver's preference to be promoted and I I notice my time is up and so unless there's other questions, those are my submissions.
1: Thank you very much. Maître Debrun.
13: Debrun. Good day, Justices. I am representing the Canadian Commercial Arbitration Centre. And I will look into the questions of uh, who is a party to the arbitration agreement we are seized with today. The first judge found that the receiver was a party to the arbitration agreement because they pursued the rights uh, under the uh, respondent's side. And I find that this decision is the right one, and that the Court of Appeal that overturned that aspect of the decision erred. We maintain that there is the fact that anyone who is a party to an agreement is bound by that agreement unless by law, they show that that agreement is not binding on them. In paragraph 56 of the reasons by the Court of Appeal of British Columbia, we see that there was a supervisory power to choose, to pick and choose the advantageous parts of the agreement. It is undisputed that these signatories to the arbitration agreement here possessed and continue to possess the significant right to uh, require that arbitration uh, be used. Each of these parties enjoys that right. And uh, under Section 15, one of the BC Arbitration Act, We see that right again. Question, excuse me for interrupting. Do you agree with the insolvency principle that says that the judge has significant discretion when looking at such cases because the judge must consider the impact of the trustees' decisions on all creditors? So the judge must not only look at the rights or obligations of an individual person, but at the overarching context. In this case, this discretion could have made the difference, is that not so? Answer, our position is uh, that going back 20 years before the jurisprudence of this case, if we look at Dell, Schwett, or even Uber more recently, we think that uh, a different light is shone on arbitration than the judiciary light. Uh, um, An inferior power is given to arbitration. And the question is being asked whether the arbitrators are capable of doing as good a job as the judges in these bankruptcy cases. We are not dealing with the Companies' Creditors' Arrangement Act. The arbitrator has been recognized by the case precedent that we are uh, quoting as being recognized by the courts. Question. Mr. Lebrun. I would like to follow up on the Chief Justice's question. If I'm understanding, he's not suggesting that we go back 20 years to uh, diminish the status of arbitration. Rather, in your uh, fact um, section 14, you quote, the Quebec system. You look at the court of appeal, or the court of appeal, where Justice Gascon, in the Avestor case, and if I'm understanding, this is what the Chief Justice is uh, referring to. This is a situation of. Uh, pros and cons, and the judge has to take the overarching context into consideration. In Section 60, it's also a question of uh, pros and cons. Could you please go into further detail on your point? Answer. Yes. First of all, when it comes to ETI at the uh, Court of Appeal, it was uh, decided in the same year as Great versus Dempter by this court. And in my opinion, I do not believe that the Bankruptcy Act gives a judge a preliminar, preliminary power over arbitration does not have the power to decide whether arbitration is more necessary than a court of justice. We argue that the matter must be referred to arbitration because the arbitration clause was not rendered uh, void. Question. I wanted to ask the Chief Justice if I could ask you one last question. Please go ahead. Earlier I was speaking to Mr. Groot, and I said the receiver can always come back to the judge who gave the receivership order to ask for instructions. The famous request for instruction. So can a receiver go to the judge and ask the judge to declare the arbitration clause null, et cetera, uh, void, etc. Answer. Generally speaking, I think that would have the same effect uh, as if we sent the matters to arbitration. The judge, or rather, the judge in this case was obligated to send the parties to arbitration. we see that uh, Canada should not uh, create areas that where arbitration cannot apply. Okay, thank you, Mr. Debrun. Thank you, Justices. Ms. Monroe. Thank you, Justices.
11: I'll, I'll start by saying that my submissions are limited to the issue of the principle of separability under arbitration law and as I've said in my factum that is a concept which is distinct from and serves a different purpose than the contract principle of severance even though they both may result in a separation of the arbitration agreement and the main contract but that's not to say that the arbitration agreement or arbitration law will always prevail And so uh, my submission is that where the facts give rise to an issue about whether the principle of separability or the principle of severance apply, the court is obliged to to undertake the analysis, including uh, the BIA analysis in this case, and determine whether there is a conflict. And there may not be a conflict in the law. So the interpretation of the principle of separability in this case. And here where there is a dispute over both the scope and the applicability of uh, of, uh, separability in the BC Court of Appeal decision. And because the BC Court of Appeal decision applied separability in a novel way, our submissions are that, that the law would benefit from some clarity from this court on that issue. So, there is consensus in the case law and in the commentary put before you that the principle of separability does apply where there is a challenge to the party's main contract. And the effect of that is that the arbitration. Agreement is unimpugned for the purpose of the arbitrator's ability to determine jurisdiction. There's disagreement in this case on whether separability is broader and also applies where there's a challenge to the arbitration clause alone, and that is where the the principle of severance may also be engaged. So. The principle of of separability is obviously critical to this case, but it it must be distinguished from a related principle of competence, competence. And that is that the arbitrator has the jurisdiction at first instance to rule on its own jurisdiction. And so even whether there's a challenge to the validity of the arbitration agreement, pursuant to which the arbitrator is appointed, the arbitrator is given first chance to make that jurisdiction determination. Separability, on the other hand, treats the agreements as independent from one another where it applies to allow for the arbitrator to make its jurisdiction determination. And in this case, the principle of separability that applies can be found in the legislation, the B.C. 1996 Arbitration Act, and the two sets of rules which were incorporated into the party's contract. So it's not controversial in this case, that the principle of separability applies where there's a challenge to the party's main agreement. And the purpose of that principle is that it preserves the arbitration clause. So the presumption is that the parties intended to have their disputes relating to their business contracts arbitrated. So one party's challenge to that agreement does not undermine that presumed intention. And remember the concept... Miss, sorry
9: to cut you off, but you you address uh, elegantly in your factum and I see it's in your um, compendium, uh, our judgment in Uber. Perhaps you can illustrate your point with reference to Uber.
11: Well, as as I've said in my factum that in my submission, the Uber case was resolved on the principle of severance, not on the principle of separability there was a challenge to the arbitration agreement as unconscionable and unenforceable. And separability was considered by both the majority and by uh, the dissent, but it actually wasn't applied if you read that language carefully. So, and there was no analysis of the applicable uh, separability provisions that could possibly arise in that case so in that case the Ontario Arbitration Act applied and there's a separability provision there and the parties had provided for the ICC rules to govern their dispute and there is a separability provision provided in there and there was no analysis uh, by the court on what that separability principle meant but the court did consider severance and so this this the the majority found at paragraph 96 of its reasons that the entire clause was unenforceable and therefore severed it entirely. Justice Cote in her dissent would have severed only a portion of the clause and she would have removed only the offending portion of the arbitration clause. And she did that by striking out those provisions that related to the ICC rules because Mr. Heller's complaint about those rules was that they required him to post the fee before he was prepared to, before before he could proceed with his arbitration so so for those reasons I say that Uber although separability and severance were both raised it it's not a separability case and in fact we don't have the court's view on what separability is which is the very reason why this issue I think is important for this court in this case
1: thank you thank you Ms. Monroe. Ms. Sidoria
11: good morning Chief
2: Justice and Justices I'm here today on behalf of CIRB because this decision, this case, will have implications beyond the domestic British Columbia arbitration regime. It will have implications on Canada's international arbitration regime because the very same words that are material to this appeal are used in the BC International Act, in domestic and international acts across the country, and in the New York Convention. And so we ask that when the court is coming to a decision in this case, that it's important they look not only to federal insolvency regimes, uh, our federal resol- insolvency regime, but also to Canada's international arbitration regime. And specifically, Canada's obligation under the New York Convention, Article 2 sub3, which, section 15 sub2 of the .BC. Domestic Arbitration Act, is based. And as this court has already heard today, that agreement states that when a party moves to stay um, a court proceeding in favor of an arbitration, then the court may not stay the, um, uh, sorry, must stay the court proceeding unless the arbitration agreement is void, inoperative, or incapable of being performed. And we uh, agree with the question earlier, the statement earlier, that The the crux of this case really is the word inoperative. Now, when Canada is looking at at law that will affect uh, its international arbitration regime, this court really should have regard to the international origins of the Act, as well as the need to promote uniformity in the Act's application. And so what do we see when we look to other jurisdictions? We observe that there is no precedent anywhere that allows ah, a trustee... But I, ju- yes. I, just,
0: I just want to say, there's one thing, one point of reference is what may be included in uh, international treaties to which Canada's party. Yes. You're now turning to comparative law, as in the law of other jurisdictions. And international law and comparative law are not the same thing.
2: Yes, I agree with that, um, Justice Rowe. And so um, let me take it here. Um, We are referring to, so if the Domestic Act and the International Act have the same words, but those very words have different meaning, that would create inconsistency and it would be problematic for our jurisprudence. Now, the reason why we're looking to other jurisdictions is not necessarily comparative law, but when we look, for example, to the BC International Act on Arbitration, Article six of that act actually specifically says that in interpreting that act, which again has the same words as section 15 the courts, Canadian courts must have regard to the international origins of the act and the need to promote uniformity in its application. And so it's actually built into our legislation, at least in the BC international arbitration act that this court should look to other jurisdictions. And we say this matters for the BC domestic act because it's the same words and we cannot have a situation where the same words mean different things across Canada.
5: That being said, Ms. Doria, I understand from uh, the proposed framework in your factum that you say it's not uh, absolute that uh, priority will always be given to the arbitration proceedings. You propose a framework saying presumptively Uh, the the arbitration agreement is valid unless the bankruptcy uh, trustee or receiver can demonstrate uh, to the court that uh, in this case, the arbitration agreement is uh, inoperative. So it's not an absolute proposition. You seem to acknowledge that there
2: is jurisdiction uh, by by the bankruptcy court. Uh, Yes, Madam Justice Coté. Um, what we are saying is that it is only if the arbitration clause is found inoperable—that's the key word—that the court can then refuse a stay of proceedings under the legislation. And to take Justice Moldaver's words, it's got to be something that's more than an inconvenience that might throw the objectives of the BIA into chaos. Now, can I arbit- can I just yes. can I
8: just pull you back though to your point about Section 7 of the International Arbitration Act? I I mean, that's a specific interpretive provision specific to that statute. And I'm wondering if given the presence of that provision that might militate against any concern arising from the interpretation of the domestic statute. In other words, there may well be by reason of that provision to which you point us, a different interpretation to be given down the road when, when the issue arises of the international... Of the, ta- of the same text in the international statute?
2: With respect, Justice Brown, um, I do not believe uh, that there would be a different interpretation. The words, just like the words in some of the foreign jurisdictions we have looked at, are the words uh, void, inoperable, and incapable of being performed all have the same genesis and that is enforcing arbitration agreements, respecting a party's agreement to arbitrate. Now, so is, I artic- so is Article
8: seven superfluous?
2: Um, no, Article seven isn't, isn't superfluous. Um, I will note, though, that the BC, um, uh, the, the new international act, has adopted the two thousand six version of the model law. Right. Um, so it could it could be that you know th- the domestic act. Um, I, I don't believe it's superfluous, but I do say it would be a mistake to ignore the meaning um, under the New York Convention, because you will then end up with different meanings of, again, the same words inoperative. Now, I just wanna say, I understand, and CIRB understands the court is trying to balance here the interests of both bankruptcy and insolvency. And what's really important to the CIRB is that the goals of bankruptcy and arbitration are not necessarily so different. They actually share a lot of the very same core principles. For example, principles of efficiency and economy of the proceedings. And in some instances, arbitration might even provide advantages which can then inform the insolvency court. Um, for example, But in uh, the end, it's, it's, it's
0: who decides? Is it the supervising judge versus ah. the arbitrator?
2: So in our position, um, it would actually be the court who decides whether the arbitration agreement is inoperative, because that, under the competence-competence principle, is a question of law. Um, Would ask you
1: to conclude because your time is up. Oh,
2: (laughs) with apologies. So I will conclude. I will just say three things. Um, It is important that we look to um, international jurisprudence on this matter. Number two, the real point here is that a court must decide. It cannot be left to a receiver or trustee to make the call on their own. And then finally, an arbitration agreement is only inoperative if it violates a core principle of bankruptcy. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Anthony Dimsis. Monsieur le Juge en chef,
14: justices, good morning, and may it please the court. Thank you for granting CFIB the opportunity to present a three-step framework to help decision makers determine if a rule of separability applies, and if it does apply, what is its content? Because without a clear framework, it is far too easy to apply the wrong rule of separability. For the court's benefit, CFIB's framework is on page nine, paragraph 36 of its factum, but the three steps are these. First, identify if a rule of separability applies, and to be clear, Separability does not always apply. But if it does apply, first identify the rule's content. Second, apply that rule of separability, not some other rule of separability. A decision-maker must not apply some general rule of separability as this risks landing on the wrong rule of separability. And third, if no rule applies, treat the contract and its arbitration clause as non separable. By way of background, separability comes in many forms. And the three most common are statutory separability, party designated separability, and what is probably best described as a general or common law rule of separability. And to further complicate matters, even inside these different categories of separability, their content can differ. For example, rules of separability found in statutes may differ from one statute to the other. Indeed, six Canadian arbitration statutes contain no rule of separability. And within those statutes that do include a rule of separability, the rule varies. Some are broad, some are narrow, some expressly render the rule of separability optional while others are silent on this point. The same is true for arbitration rules coming out of arbitration centres. Some centres construct the rule broadly by sanctioning, separating an arbitration clause from both non-existent contracts and invalid ones. Other centres construct the rule more narrowly. What's more, some rules of separability in these arbitration centres expressly leave the rule optional, while others are silent on it. In short, there is no one rule of separability and CFIB's condensed book at page two includes examples of both statutory separability and rules from Canadian arbitration centers and international ones. Thus, the first step in CFIB's suggested framework requires identifying the right rule. Now, after identifying this right rule, the second step requires a decision maker to apply that rule. It should not apply some other version of separability thus to say that separability always applies or that it applies only if the main contract is challenged for being invalid is not precise when a statute or the parties provide a rule of separability a decision maker should not substitute that rule with another one now separability does not always apply when parties have not selected a separability rule the question arises whether some general rule of separability should apply automatically. And here, CFIB cautions that the answer to that question should not be a quick yes. Crucially, separability is not necessary to make arbitration work. Admittedly, separability is often found in default statutory rules and rules And this rule of separability may even facilitate arbitration, but fundamentally it is not a mandatory rule. Parties may opt out from its application. Consequently, and this brings us to the third and final step of the proposed framework, if a statute does not include a rule of separability and if the parties have not inserted one, a decision-maker should not assume separability applies before it first investigates the intention of the parties, the legislator, or both. And should a decision maker reach the conclusion that there is no separability, then the contract and the arbitration clause should be treated as non separable. In closing, CFIB's framework offers a straightforward approach for when decision makers are confronted with the separability doctrine. Those are CFIB's submissions, and I thank the court
1: for its time. Thank you very much. The court will take its uh, morning break, 15 minutes. Thank you.
3: The court, La Cour.
1: Thank you. Um, Kelsey Meyer. Good
15: morning, Chief Justice, Justices. We act for the respondents, Petro Corporation and its affiliates all of which are in receivership. I'll refer to those as the Petrowest respondents and the court-appointed receiver thereof, Ernst & Young, Inc. It is the receivership that gives rise to the main issue on this appeal. Should a court-appointed receiver whose court-ordered role and statutory purpose is to maximize recovery of assets of insolvent debtors and then distribute them to creditors be bound by arbitration clauses in contracts entered into, not by the receiver, but by the debtors prior to the receivership? the result of which would be that funds collected by the receiver that would otherwise go to the creditors would instead be used to fund multiple arbitrations and where there is no prejudice to the appellants who have already undertaken to defend the litigation. In fact, the Chamber's judge pointed out that the appellants concede that it is very likely that arbitration under the agreements will entail multiple proceedings with attendant practical challenges and increased cost That is at tab one of our condensed book. It's paragraph five of the Chamber's judge's decision, the last sentence. And at paragraph 56, the Chamber's judge held, the parties agree that overriding the arbitration clauses would promote the efficient and inexpensive resolution of their dispute. A single judicial process will be faster and less expensive than four arbitrations and a possible court case. No one has suggested that the issues are not appropriate for judicial determination. The appellants in their submissions this morning say that the chambers judge assumed that arbitration proceedings would be a fit inefficient. In fact, the appellants conceded that that point, and the judge made a finding of fact on that. The appellants have not appealed that finding. Considering the appellants conceded this point, one can only infer that their appeal of the lower court's decisions are a tactical measure to dissuade the receiver of the insolvent Petroest respondents from pursuing the claims against the appellants. Back to the main issue on this appeal, we say the answer in this case is no. As a matter of statutory interpretation and as a matter of law, the decisions of the chambers judge and of the appellate court were correct in the result in each case and resulted in a harmonious interpretation of federal and provincial legislation. We submit that the correct approach to be taken by the court In determining whether the litigation should be stayed in favor of arbitrations in this receivership context is for the court to apply a case-by-case analysis in consideration of the facts the legislation which is the bankruptcy and insolvency act and the arbitration act in this case the policies purposes and objectives of that legislation including the purposes and objectives of a receivership and the jurisprudence and authorities and further That is the approach that the chamber's judge took in this case.
5: So Ms. Meyer, you said uh, that uh, both decisions, the uh, uh, BCSC court and the court of appeal uh, are right in the result. So implying that uh, you may disagree with the reasoning. So uh, the court of appeal decided that uh, the receiver was not a party. Uh, because of some sort of an implicit disclaimer. So do you uh, still contest that you were not a party to the arbitration, the receiver was not a party to the arbitration agreement, or your argument is more centered on the power of the bankruptcy court uh, to set the arbitration agreement, to declare the arbitration agreement inoperative?
15: Thank you, Justice Cote. We submit that this appeal can and should be dismissed on any of the following grounds, which I will address in my submissions. To outline them at the outset, first, the court has the statutory jurisdiction under sections 183 and 243 of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, which we'll refer to as the BIA, to find that the arbitration clauses in issue are inoperative or incapable of being performed. This is consistent with section 15 sub two of the Arbitration Act And thus, this approach results in a harmonious interpretation of federal and provincial legislation. Second, we say the Arbitration Act is not engaged for three reasons. First, that the appellants have taken a step in the litigation proceedings by undertaking to defend the claim and agreeing to defend the claim. And therefore, pursuant to Section 15 of the Arbitration Act, they cannot apply to stay the litigation. I will speak to our position on this only briefly today as I recognize that the other grounds are likely of more interest to this court. The condensed book of the respondents includes at tab five, the Riglin Affidavit, exhibits J to O of that affidavit are correspondence between counsel, including at exhibit J, a letter from counsel for the appellants to me as counsel for the respondents saying, we undertake to file a defense in due course propose october 31st as a date further correspondence was entered into entering into an agreement to defend in consideration for an extension of time to do so we submit with respect to this ground that the chamber's judge erred in law in finding that the appellants undertaking to file a defense did not constitute a step in the proceedings because the appellants did not rely on or invoke the rules of court and that as she said there is no evidence that the plaintiffs would have acted differently if the letter had not contained an undertaking, and it simply stated that the defendants will file a defense by a certain date. Those considerations are not part of the test. The test is whether the appellants took a step in the proceedings. Step this- analysis
7: presupposes that they're bound by the arbitration agreement, uh, though. But so, going back to Justice Cote's question, um, what is the? Maybe you just t- tell it, tell me what the answer. I'm interested as well. That would be of help.
15: Yes, and certainly going to the other points on which we say the appeal can and should be dismissed. We say that the receiver is not bound by contracts of a debtor unless the receiver has adopted or performed the contracts. And that has not happened here. And so the receiver is not bound by the contracts in issue, including the arbitration clauses therein. Seeking recovery of funds owed on a contract does not constitute adoption or performance of a contract. And we submit that the B.C. Court of Appeal did err in deciding otherwise on that point.
6: And can I just uh, ask for a precision in terms of your first um, submission in terms of the jurisdiction under the VIA? Do I take it that you're making that argument regardless of whether or not uh, Ernst & Young is seen as a party under the Arbitration Act?
15: Yes, thank you, Justice Martin. I agree with that in that regardless of whether Ernst & Young, in its capacity as receiver, is a party to the arbitration agreement or is otherwise bound by the arbitration agreement. We say the court has the statutory jurisdiction, or the alternative, the inherent jurisdiction, under sections one eighty three and two forty three of the BIA. To that's
12: what I wanted to ask you: um, Do the two combine here? Because the judge in British Columbia uh, was not the bankruptcy court really if i understand this correctly that was in alberta so i'm just wondering whether the two sections together give the judge in british columbia the authority because under 183 um, the judge in bc um, had this kind of overriding you know original jurisdiction ancillary etc cetera. Et cetera. So perhaps that's how she got the authority to be dealing with this issue in the context of what was an action that on its face was just a civil action between the two parties.
15: Justice Moldaver, again, that does tie to Justice Cote's question. We agree that the uh, Chamber's judge had the jurisdiction under Section 183 and Section 243 to uh, make the decision that she made she found that she had the inherent jurisdiction to find that the arbitration agreements were inoperative or incapable of being performed. That is at paragraphs 49 and 60 of her decision. Bankruptcy
8: and Um, Insolvency Act doesn't speak at all about inherent jurisdiction. It speaks about original jurisdiction. So if she's invoking inherent jurisdiction, then she must be understanding it in, in the common sense, which is really it's a procedural power that flows from your status as a court in order to carry out your powers as a court. How on earth can inherent jurisdiction confer jurisdiction uh, under a statute?
15: Justice Brown, I submit that in the Chamber's Judge's decision, as well as a number of the other decisions that we rely on in this case, including Wedgemount and Pope and Talbot, that the court indicated that it was relying on its inherent jurisdiction, but in fact, the court actually had statutory jurisdiction under Section 243. And I submit that because, as is set out in the uh, article of Justice Jackson of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal and Professor Janice Sarah. they referred to a hierarchical approach to be taken by the courts in exercising uh, their statutory jurisdiction uh, first and then looking to inherent jurisdiction. I, um,
8: I, well, I'm, my question is, I mean, can you ever look to inherent jurisdiction to answer this question? I, 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 I fail to see how, but maybe my understanding of inherent jurisdiction is impoverished.
15: Justice Brown, I submit that in Eagle River, Justice Binney, this is at tab 8 of our condensed book, paragraph 77, said that the BIA prima facie establishes one command center or single control for all proceedings related to the bankruptcy, and that that was pursuant to section 183 of the BIA. And so there's that uh, jurisdiction set out there. Uh, With respect to inherent jurisdiction, um, there are a number of cases that support the application of inherent jurisdiction here, as I've mentioned, including Wedge Mount and Pope and Talbot, and a view of the hierarchical approach and the broad statutory jurisdiction pursuant to Section 243. Uh, I submit that it isn't and wasn't in those cases necessary for the court to rely on its inherent jurisdiction as it had statutory jurisdiction. Turning to statutory jurisdiction. May, court- I,
7: may, I, may I just ask you, Ms. Meyer, before you continue? Yes. Um, what is the statutory basis for the receivership order? Is it uh, 243 sub one alone, or is it 243 sub one and 183 sub one?
15: Justice Jamal, the statutory basis for the receivership order is section 243 sub one alone. That being said, Section 183 creates jurisdiction, uh, and specifically Sections 1C and D creates jurisdiction in the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench and also the BC Supreme Court as bankruptcy courts. And so to the point that had been raised with counsel for the appellants about whether, I believe it was Justice Cote raised this, whether the court, or rather the the receiver, should apply to the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench for a declaration that uh, the arbitration clauses are inoperative or incapable of being performed before proceeding to sue, I submit that the receiver certainly could have done that, but that the B.C. Supreme Court had the jurisdiction under Section 183 to act as a bankruptcy court, and in fact, as is apparent from Justice Ayers' Chambers' justice decision, that is in fact what she did.
7: Maybe at a later point, you don't have to answer this now, but at some point, if you could uh, tell us why you need inherent jurisdiction at all, if you have uh, 243.1c, the power to take uh, any action the court considered advisable and the specific terms of this uh, receivership order, why isn't that sufficient?
15: Justice Jamal, I submit it is sufficient, that the court has broad statutory jurisdiction under section 243. Section 24131 a is included at tab 3 of our condensed book, as are all the other BIA provisions we intend to refer to that section expressly authorizes a court to appoint a receiver to take possession of accounts receivable of an insolvent person and pursuant to section 243one c to take any other action that the court considers advisable in that regard the dgdpbc holdings and third eye capital corporation which is a 2021 decision of the alberta court of appeal included at tab 6 of our condensed book states at paragraph 20 that the court's residual statutory jurisdiction under the very wide wording of section 243 of the bia has been interpreted to give supervising judges the broadest possible mandate in insolvency proceedings to enable them to react to any circumstances that may arise in the insolvency institute of canada's factum they include the sam babe article we've included an excerpt of that at tab seven of our condensed book babe states Courts have generally held that section 243 sub 1 of the BIA alleviates any need to resort to inherent jurisdiction in the receivership context as it allows courts to authorize any action by the receiver that it considers advisable. And in that regard, that decision refers to the decision of the Ontario Court of Appeal in 2019 in Business Development Bank of Canada and Astoria Organic Matters.
12: Well, just to be clear, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but... You know we've been using the term the supervisory judge which has its own connotation usually in these matters but i take it your position is a combination of 183 and 243 and bearing in mind that it's your opponents that moved in the british columbia court superior court to have uh, the stay of proceedings so so um and i i have trouble thinking that it lies in their mouth now to say that that judge didn't have the authority to do what she did, but I I guess really the point here is that the Justice Iyer was taking on a supervisory role to a certain extent given that this was brought before her by your the other side, and I don't know that anybody complained that she could not look into the Bankruptcy Act and so on, because this was just a civil action, a normal civil action. Do I have that right or what?
15: I agree, Justice Muldaver, in that Justice Iyer, the chamber's judge, did take a supervisory role as the BC Supreme Court has jurisdiction pursuant to section 183 sub one of the BIA and that she exercised that jurisdiction. While she states she exercised it on the basis of inherent jurisdiction, I submit that based on the broad jurisdiction under section 243, that it was unnecessary for her to actually rely on inherent jurisdiction and that what she was actually exercising was her statutory jurisdiction, as was also the case I submit in the Wedgemount decision, which we referred to in our authorities, turning briefly to that Wedgemount decision and again, uh, I note also that uh, the hierarchical approach is set out by Justice Jackson and Janice Sarah in their article, but also that they note that courts often confuse. Uh, inherent jurisdiction and statutory jurisdiction. That is included in our condensed book as well and uh, it's pages one to three of that article that are included there. Uh, With respect to the wedge mount case, there are a number of cases that do indicate that the court is relying on inherent jurisdiction. The wedge mount case is one of those cases that we've referred to Other cases that we refer to in support of our position are the Alberta Court of Appeals decision in Smoky River Coal, where the Court of Appeal held that arbitration is a proceeding that can be stayed under Section 11 sub 4 of the CCAA in that case. Here in this receivership, there is also a stay of proceedings, and the appellants have not applied to lift that stay. We refer also to Hayes Forest Services, excerpts of that are at tab 15 of our condensed book. There, the court found that it had jurisdiction to override an arbitration clause where judicial resolution of the dispute was less expensive and more expeditious than arbitration. We also refer to Reliance Insurance. This is at tab 16 of our condensed book. There, in the context of winding up and restructuring proceedings, where a stay of proceedings had not been lifted, the court found that the agreements to arbitrate ceased to have effect and were unenforceable. They were inoperative. The court noted the object of the statute in that case is expeditious and inexpensive winding up, noted the delay associated with the arbitral tribunals and that a multiplicity of litigation that adds unnecessary costs and depletes what would otherwise be available to distribute to creditors should be discouraged. In this case, as I've said, there is a stay of proceedings that stays the appellants from exercising rights to arbitration, and they have not applied to lift it. My friend, Mr. DeGroote, took you to the receivership order in the Riglin Affidavit. An excerpt of that is at tab five of our condensed book, and I would ask the court to turn specifically to paragraphs eight and nine of the receivership order. It, again, is at exhibit A of the Riglin Affidavit. In particular while Mr. DeGroote has taken the court to paragraph 8 I would submit that paragraph 9 is also uh, important for the court to take a look at in that what paragraph 9 states with the heading no exercise of rights or remedies all rights and remedies including without limitation set off rights against the debtors the receiver or affecting the property are hereby stayed and suspended except with the written consent of the receiver or leave of this court. Justices, the appellants have not applied to lift the stay of proceedings. On that basis, we submit that in fact, the appellants have no capacity to require arbitration in that they are stayed from enforcing the arbitration clause. Justice Cote, you had referenced this in your questions to the appellants. We note as well that the PetroWest respondents themselves also do not have capacity to enforce the arbitration agreements as a result of the receivership. Because of the receivership, the PetroWest respondents have no authority or capacity to act. The directors and officers of those entities have no authority to act. The receiver has exclusive authority, and this is included in the latter sentence of paragraph three at the end of all the subsections of the receivership order the PetroWest respondents themselves are incapable of performing the, op- the arbitration agreements. And further to that point, the appellants are also incapable of performing the arbitration agreements in the circumstances where they have not applied to lift the state of proceedings against the petro West respondents as a result of the receivership order. The appellants thus have no capacity to assert any rights or enforce any rights of arbitration. In the appellant's condensed book at tab 22, They've included an article by Julian Ellis. It is entitled, A Comparative Law Approach, Enforceability of Arbitration Agreements in American Insolvency Proceedings. At page 147 of that article, Ellis confirms the necessity of applying to the bankruptcy court to lift the stay of proceedings in insolvency proceedings before proceeding with arbitration.
5: Ms. Meyer, I just want to ask you a question about the receivership order. You say that the receiver does not have the capacity, but uh, if I look at, for instance, Section 3F, to exercise all remedies of the debtors. So Petro West can exercise, or the receiver in the shoes of Petro West can exercise all the remedies which were available to Petro West, including to sue, to collect the money. And if the receiver would have decided to arbitrate that debate, I don't understand why you are saying that the receiver did not have the capacity to do that because of section
15: nine of the receivership order. Uh, In fact, Justice Coté, that isn't what I'm saying. I'm saying the receiver is the only entity here that does have any capacity to act. I think
5: it is not disputed that uh, the receiver is the one who is uh, mandated, mandated by the receivership order to take the proceedings does not yes. mean that he is the one who should decide if it should be arbitration or uh, a civil, uh, civil claim.
15: Justice Cote, to that point, I submit that in the circumstances where the appellants have brought an application to stay the litigation in favor of arbitration, that it was appropriate that the court make the decision as to whether it should be arbitration or litigation, and that the chamber's judge, to your earlier question of uh, what parts of which decisions do we agree with, properly exercised her jurisdiction. Although we say she could have exercised her statutory jurisdiction, not her inherent jurisdiction, in determining that in this particular case, it wasn't necess- that the uh, uh, litigation should not be stayed. Sorry, but I'm a little just... bit
12: confused. I apologize.
15: No, go
6: ahead.
12: Well, you took us to paragraph nine of the order, and I'm just trying to understand what it is that you're saying about that. Are you saying that the appellants had no right? or to bring this uh, to to bring this case before a judge against the receiver because the receiver had started the claim right that's correct In, in the courts so are you saying that this whole thing required leave of the court to begin with before any application could be brought to prevent the receiver from proceeding in the form that it wanted is that i'm just trying to understand what you're using nine for
15: thank you justice Muldaver. i submit that uh, first of all the receiver commenced the action in the british columbia supreme court the appellants then applied to stay the litigation in favor of arbitration in that circumstance we say that pursuant to paragraph nine of the receivership order the appellants are stayed from going to arbitration without first seeking leave of the court to do so and they haven't applied to lift the stay of proceedings the ellis article i referred to specifically references the fact that you have to actually apply to lift the stay of proceedings
0: which which uh, I, i this is more than a mere technicality it seems to me who needs to go to court to seek what directions right in other words in 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 the proper uh, rolling carrying forward of these matters, was it incumbent properly on uh, PetroWest or Peace River Hydro to say to before the Alberta judge, we're asking for you to uh, make an order saying that we're not bound, but th- that the arbitration agreement is inoperative, and therefore we'll go forward with a court proceeding. Or was it open to uh, Peace River to proceed without first seeking directions?
15: Uh, Justice Rowe, I, I think there might be a, a mix-up there between Petro-West Corporation and Peace River Hydro Partners, so I'll just use appellants and respondents. But uh, to that point, the we admit that we agree that the respondents, being the receiver, could have applied to the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench to seek a declaration authorizing it to proceed with litigation uh, rather than arbitration at the outset, but having not done so, that the B.C. Supreme Court did have the jurisdiction under Section 243 sub 1 or the alternative, the inherent jurisdiction to find that the arbitration agreements Uh, were inoperable or incapable of being performed and that the stay of the litigation should not be granted. However, what I'm also saying is that at the same time that the appellants, Peace River Hydro Partners, were applying to stay the litigation, it was also incumbent on them to apply to lift the stay of proceedings in the receivership. And that's where paragraph nine of the receivership order comes into play because that paragraph stays all rights and remedies of any party, including the appellants. Did you say
5: that to the judge in BC and saying, wait a minute, uh, Madam Justice, your sales with here uh, an application to stay uh, a civil claim, but they did not ask an order according to section nine under receivership order, or is it a new argument you are making today?
15: Justice Cote, it it wasn't an argument that was specifically made before the B.C. Supreme Court. However, this court, uh, or rather the appellants, in the course of their submissions have raised issues with respect to party autonomy. And to that point, that then goes to whether the receiver is a party to the arbitration agreements. That, in turn, leads to the question of whether the arbitration agreements are inoperative or incapable of being performed. And so in response to the submissions of the appellants, we say that the Petrowest respondents themselves do not have any capacity to enter into arbitration because they have no capacity at all. Their directors and officers have no capacity. We say that the receiver is the only party that has exclusive authority to act on behalf of the Petrowest respondents. And with respect to the appellants, which are the defendants to the action, we say that they would have had to have applied to lift the stay of proceedings before they could have proceeded to seek to stay the litigation in favor of arbitration. Now, they might have done that all at the same time, but they didn't do so.
0: All right. My apologies um, a moment ago for, for confusing things. But uh, uh, just to say, um, the receive, there's, there's a couple of ways of understanding what you've said. But it seems to me the implication is that as of the granting of the receivership order, that had the effect of causing the arbitration agreements to become inoperative. Is, is that uh, how it operates?
15: No, Justice Rowe, by no means are we saying that in every situation where a debtor is a party to an arbitration agreement, that the arbitration agreement is inoperative or incapable of being performed, what we are saying is that the court should engage in a case by case analysis in any such case and consider the legislation as well as the facts and the purposes and objectives of the legislation. And that the court did so in this case, as is, evi- as is evident, pardon me, from the chamber's judge's decision at paragraph 60, and that that was the appropriate approach. And that in consideration of the concession by the appellants, that multiple arbitrations in this case would uh, entail multiple proceedings with attendant practical challenges and increased costs that it was appropriate that the court exercise its jurisdiction and deny the stay of the litigation proceedings. Uh, I'm going to try one more
0: more time because I, I understood you to say at the end that in the circumstances of this case, this was an appropriate exercise of discretion. My point was, once the receivership is granted, who has which... It, 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 on which party is it incumbent to, 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 to act? In other words, if, if, uh, if the non-receiver party says, uh, we want to go to arbitration, do they have to go to court and say uh, to, the, to the applications judge or the supervising judge, we wish to proceed to arbitration, we wish to, to exercise that right, and, and we, we're, we're coming before you because your stay has blocked us That's, I guess, what I was asking.
15: Yes, and I agree with that, Justice Rowe. That application could have been made at the same time as the application under Section 15 of the Arbitration Act to stay the litigation in favor of arbitration.
9: But, Ms. Meyer, you'd you'd be happy to to concede at your end that in in another case where the appellants hadn't Mm -hmm. made their concession, had there not been a finding of fact, that arbitration, even in a bankruptcy setting, might turn out to be an efficient way for not only in respect of party autonomy, but also in respect of the objectives of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act.
15: Yes, that's correct, Justice Casera. I submit that there may be circumstances where uh, it would be appropriate for a receiver to engage in arbitration. And uh, to that point, I wanted to speak briefly with respect to, arbitration uh, policy and also the policy with respect to bankruptcy and insolvency. Uh, From the insolvency perspective, the purpose of a receivership, as is confirmed by section 243 of the BIA, is for a court appointed receiver who is an officer of the court with the power to act nationally to exercise its court ordered exclusive authority, but also its duty to receive and collect all of the assets, including accounts receivable of the insolvent debtor And then to distribute the proceeds of those assets to the debtors creditors the receivership order expressly authorizes the receiver to bring litigation in the name of the debtor to fulfill that obligation and because the goal is to maximize recoveries to the creditors of the insolvent debtor that in turn requires that the receivership be efficient and fair to all stakeholders the single control model which i'll speak to reflects that purpose but turning then to policies with respect to Arbitration, Justice Cote, in the Uber case, you held that concepts of party autonomy, legislative intent, commercial practicalities, and freedom of contract ought to be taken into account. There is, I submit, no issue of party autonomy or freedom of contract here in that the receiver did not enter into any of these contracts and is not a party to them, nor is it bound by them, having not adopted or performed them. As I've just addressed, Okay, I'd like to get to the yeah. not bound uh, that that
6: particular portion of your argument. Certainly, um, I think that it's um, a, an argument can be made that in seeking to enforce payment under even an executed contract, that uh, the receiver is somehow confirming the contract. So that would be point number one. I would ask you to address, and my related point on that is that. Uh, it's clear here that as you as you argue that uh the performance obligations have been completed, but for payment um, we're sitting here trying to come up with a general rule, and is it really an appropriate basis to say something is executory and therefore will be subject to different rules to contracts that are are somehow um, performed in what in totality substantially i mean the the differentiation between contracts based on where they are in the progression of performance doesn't seem to be a good and principled basis on which to say whether or not they're being affirmed abandoned disclaimed whatever
15: Thank you justice martin with respect to the first question the law and authorities which we've uh, included in our factum at paragraphs 59 and 80 to 81 confirm that suing to recover money owed on a contract does not constitute adopting or performing a contract collecting outstanding accounts receivable is part of the receiver's court authorized duties it does not mean that the receiver is bound by the contract giving rise to the accounts receivable once an obligation to make payment on a contract has accrued, it remains enforceable even after repudiation due to breach or disclaimer. That is a principle of basic contract law as set out by Fridman and Wadhams in their texts, which we've included in our factum. And so in this case, there has been a breach of the contracts in that the appellants have not paid for the services and work provided by the petro West respondents. The receiver, has a court-ordered duty to collect uh, accounts receivable that are owed to the PetroWest respondents, and so in doing so, it has not adopted or performed the contracts. I submit that it would be an absurd result if by carrying out its court-ordered duty to collect accounts receivable, that the receiver therefore was deemed to be bound by all contracts of a debtor on which accounts receivable were owed. Don't- and-
10: I was just going to follow up on that same point because if a debtor who sues on, sorry, if the receiver sues based on the debtor's contractual right doesn't amount to adoption of the contract, what, what, what circumstances would that uh, entail? Does it mean that as long as the receiver has not performed any part of the agreement? Is that a, a, a prerequisite um, before the receivers considered to have adopted the contract?
15: Thank you for the question, Justice Karakat Sanis. Uh, in terms of adopting or performing the contract, I'll use this case as an example. The contracts in issue involve the Petro-West respondents providing services and uh, materials to the Peace River Hydro Partnership. And so if there were remaining obligations to provide services or or materials by the Petrowest respondents and the receiver had determined in looking at the contract that it could bring more money into the estate by continuing to perform the contract and thus did so and continued to carry on the contract, then the receiver would have adopted or performed the contract. That didn't occur in this case because as the appellants have admitted at paragraph 100 of their factum, there was nothing remaining to be performed.
5: So Ms. Meyer, when the Court of Appeal says in paragraph 55 that uh, in the factual situation we are dealing with here, it is open to the receiver to disclaim the arbitration agreements, notwithstanding that it has adopted the containing contracts for the purpose of suing on them. So do I understand that you disagree with that uh, proposition of the Court of Appeal?
15: Justice uh, Cote, yes, I disagree with the finding of the BC Court of Appeal that the receiver has adopted or performed the contracts by suing on them.
5: And uh, when the Court of Appeal says that uh, you have disclaimed, at least implicitly, uh, the uh, arbitration agreement, uh, are you pretending before us today that there was any disclaimer here?
15: Justice Cote, you'll have seen at Appendix B to the yeah. appellant, yes, the appellant's factum that we've conceded to the BC Court of Appeal that we have, that the receiver has not disclaimed the contracts nor the arbitration clauses therein. That being said, with respect to the application of the doctrine of separability, if the court looks at the arbitration clauses as separable and considers the conduct of the receiver, and certainly the courts have held, and the law is clear that the conduct of the receiver can be taken into account with regard to whether a receiver has adopted or performed or disclaimed a contract that um, by opposing the application to stay the litigation in favor of arbitration by that conduct the receiver has implicitly disclaimed the arbitration uh, clauses within the contracts that being based on the doctrine of separability applying but is, it, app- is, it, is, it, is it really
5: applicable here do we need to uh, uh, consider the doctrine of separability to decide this case
15: Justice Coté, my submission is no, that the court does not need to consider that. Uh, We submit that the court can dismiss this appeal on the other grounds we've asserted and that there is no need for the court to turn to the doctrine of separability. However, we do also say that the B.C. Court of Appeal applied separability correctly. To begin with respect to the doctrine of separability, it can be applied to preserve the main contract where an arbitration agreement is found not to be valid or enforceable. The appellants themselves admit this in their factum at paragraphs 81, 82, and 86, and they admit this was also the case in Uber. At tab 22 of our condensed book, there's an excerpt of the majority decision of Justice Isabella and Roe in Uber and paragraph 96, where they stated, we add that the unconscionability of the arbitration clause can be considered separately from that of the contract as a whole. And then later in that paragraph, they continue on. Further support comes from the severability clause of the agreements in question and the Arbitration Act in question. And so I submit that the court's majority decision was supported by both separability and severability. But also, Justice Cote, your dissenting decision at paragraph 224 states It it mentions that the Arbitration Act and the UNCITRAL model law codify one aspect of the doctrine, that is, the preservation of the arbitral tribunal's jurisdiction to rule on the validity of the underlying contract on the basis that the arbitration agreement is to be treated as a separate and independent contract for such purposes. But then you state, however, the separability doctrine has wider significance more broadly the doctrine holds that an arbitration agreement is invalidated only by a defect relating specifically to the arbitration agreement itself and not by one relating merely to the underlying contract in which that agreement is found gary born a leading authority on international arbitration confirms unequivocally that separability also applies to preserve the validity of the underlying contract notwithstanding the invalidity illegality or termination of an associated arbitration clause and that excerpt is at tab 23 of our condensed book. Thus, we say that the B.C. Court of Appeals' application of the doctrine of separability to examine the enforceability of the arbitration clauses distinct from the rest of the agreements is consistent with the accepted and recognized uses of that doctrine.
5: But uh, is it not a fact that uh, separability is intended to safeguard
15: arbitration clauses, not to imperil them? Uh, Justice Cote, I would submit that uh, the separability doctrine can be applied in the way that you would indicated at paragraph 224 of Uber and Heller, and also that uh, Mr. Bourne indicates in his authoritative text on arbitration. But there's, I submit that is incorrect to indicate that the BC Court of Appeal used the doctrine of separability to find that the arbitration clauses were invalid. Rather, the BC Court of Appeal used the doctrine of separability to examine the arbitration clause to determine whether they were enforceable. And then on that basis, on examining them, determined that they had been implicitly disclaimed.
7: Ms. Uh, Maya, uh, may I ask a question? Um, you pointed to paragraph nine of the order, and I'd originally thought that maybe it was just belts and suspenders with paragraph three c of the order but paragraph nine the first part of my question is paragraph nine appears to be broader applies both in respect of the debtor and the receiver so whether or not the receiver is a uh, party to the agreement uh, paragraph nine would apply uh, and then in respect of paragraph three c um it talks about ceasing to perform any contracts of the debtor so if that if that is broad enough to authorize the receiver's conduct then it becomes unnecessary to decide, it, One could say it becomes unnecessary to decide whether the receiver is bound by the arbitration agreement because it certainly has the uh, power to cease to perform a contract of the debtor. And then whether it's a party to the arbitration agreement or bound by it becomes irrelevant.
15: I agree, Justice Jamal. Thank you for the question. Um, I, I don't have more to add on, on that. I, I agree with what you've stated. I thought perhaps I'd turn back to Justice Martin's question um, as to whether a general rule with respect to this appeal is that whether the receiver uh, has adopted or performed the contracts is based on whether it's an executory contract. And in that respect, Uh, I submit that that is not the case. Uh, Whether the receiver has adopted or performed the contract depends on the conduct of the receiver. And so certainly if it's an executory contract, it it may be that the receiver has actually executed it and adopted or performed it. But that doesn't mean that there can be an executory contract that the receiver does in fact disclaim or simply hasn't elected whether to disclaim it or whether to adopt and perform it. I wanted to just turn to one final point with respect to the doctrine of separability. Certain of the interveners have asserted that the BC Court of Appeals decision is inconsistent with Article 16 sub one of the UNCITRAL model law. Aside from the fact that this appeal involves the Domestic Arbitration Act and the model law does not apply, the BC Court of Appeal decision does not offend Article 16 sub one in my submission. That section codifies only one aspect of the doctrine of separability is not a complete code of how separability works in all cases it does not negate the other applications of separability as justice cote you addressed in paragraph 224 of uber and as born addressed as well certain of the interveners have noted the potential impact of this case on canada's role as a world leader in arbitration law i submit there is no reason why this case should have any bearing on international arbitration law or canada's role as a leader in that regime this case relates to a domestic arbitration statute whether th- where the legislature has intentionally limited that statute's application to parties and to that point i wanted to turn to another aspect of the grounds on which we say that this appeal can be dismissed and should be dismissed the arbitration act itself by its terms does not extend to persons claiming through or under a party to an arbitration agreement unlike other canadian arbitration legislation and thus does not apply to a receiver The legislative history of the act demonstrates that this was a deliberate decision by the legislature. Prior to 1986, the BC domestic arbitration legislation included the broad language which bound the act to persons claiming through or under a party to an arbitration agreement. That through or under language was removed from the domestic BC Arbitration Act in 1986 at the same time that the through or under language was included in the bc international commercial arbitration act which was enacted for the first time concurrently in 1986 the removal of the through or under language from the domestic bc arbitration act is presumed to be deliberate and should be given effect the appellants include in their condensed book at tab three the caverett steel and crane limited and cone corp decision
9: but before you, before you go there i mean Certainly. just just as deliberate may be the Lack of a reference to signed by the parties. Are we to make the same inference about that? I mean, it's a bit of a wash. The the the, y- y- your, the statutory interpretation argument. You're right and to say that uh, the reference to parties could have been stated differently. But there's there are plenty of international and, and domestic uh, examples where it, where signed by the parties was put in there, for example, and it wasn't here. So, so I'm not sure how far we can decide the case on on the kind of inference that you're you're proposing to us.
15: Thank you, Justice Kassir. Uh I submit that signed by the parties could potentially be interpreted to impose an additional requirement. Uh, for example, if an assignee had taken on a, a contract, perhaps there would be an argument that that assignee has not signed The contract that includes the arbitration agreement and so in such a case where the statute includes that wording that the arbitration clause doesn't apply to an assignee in that case. My point is that this goes back to the case by case analysis that we submit the court should take in determining whether the receiver should be bound by an arbitration clause in that it requires consideration of the legislation itself which in this case is the Arbitration Act and the BIA, as well as the purposes and objectives behind that legislation and the facts of the case itself. Sorry, do you draw
12: a distinction between the receiver and the trustee? That was one of the first questions the Chief Justice asked you. Yes. And and if I understood it, somebody was saying that the trustee is actually a statutory assignee. Where do you stand on that?
15: Uh, Justice Moldaver, I think it's very important to understand the distinction between receivership and bankruptcy on this case, and I submit that the appellants uh, haven't necessarily understood that. And so, to that point, petro um, PetroS Corporation is not in bankruptcy. So, property of a debtor in receivership, including the debtor's contractual rights, does not vest in a court-appointed receiver. On that basis then, none of the assets of Petrowest Corporation, including contracts and contractual rights, have vested in the receiver. While the Petrowest affiliates are in receivership and are also bankrupt, the bankruptcy of the Petrowest affiliates is irrelevant to this appeal. That is because there remain outstanding claims of secured creditors against each of the Petrowest affiliates. As a result, and as a matter of law, none of the assets of the Petrowest affiliates, including contractual rights, have vested or will vest in the trustee in bankruptcy unless and until all of their respective secured creditors have been paid out in full. Section 71 of the BIA, which is included at tab three of our condensed book, is subject to the rights of secured creditors and has no application here where the secured creditors have not been paid in full. Unlike a receivership, secured creditors are not affected by a bankruptcy. So none of the property of any of the petro West respondents has vested in a trustee in bankruptcy. The appellants assert at paragraph 4 of their main factum that courts have long recognized that a party to an arbitration agreement includes, among others, assignees, agents, and trustees in bankruptcy. That assertion fails to recognize that a receiver is not an assignee or an agent of a party to an arbitration agreement, nor is it acting in its capacity as a trustee in bankruptcy. A receiver is an officer of the court, not an agent of the debtor, and is a separate legal entity from the debtors and from the trustee in bankruptcy. In this case, Ernst & Young acts both as the receiver and as the trustee in bankruptcy, but these are two different legal capacities. They cannot be conflated. A receiver is not a statutory assignee or a successor in interest of a debtor in receivership. And the case law that the appellants point to is to support their assertion that the receiver is an assignee of a debtor relates to a trustee in bankruptcy as being an assignee of the debtor, not and a receiver.
6: Law. Well, yeah, go, go you, ahead. I was just going to say, that, but, but would you say then that a trustee in bankruptcy is a party to
15: the arbitration agreement under the Arbitration Act? Justice Martin, I would agree that based on this particular arbitration act that a trustee in bankruptcy would be a party. That being said, I would submit that the court would still have a jurisdiction potentially under the BIA, although not Section 243, because that relates only to receiverships to consider whether the the arbitration clause should not be upheld.
5: So Ms. Meyer, um, I understand that difference between a receiver and a trustee, but um and this is why I think that a receiver has to uh, exercise uh, the proceedings in the name of the debtors so if I go back to the receivership order it says that paragraph 3f to exor- in, con- in, uh, in connection with the account receivable and the money owed to exercise all remedies of the debtors is it not a fact that in this case with if we would not have had a receiver, the remedy that the debtor had was to go to arbitration in order to collect the
15: money owed under the Uh Justice Coté, to that point, uh, again, I, I state that the receiver is not bound by the contracts. This is not my question, but if, right. how should I interpret all remedies of the
5: debtors is it not limited to the remedies which were available to the debtors? And in this case, arbitration. Forget about the suspension and the jurisdiction. It's, it's another issue. But just to decide if the receiver is a party to the agreement, here we say that he has to exor- he can exercise all remedies of the debtors, not different dem- remedies than the ones uh, available to the debtors. And in this case, there were arbitration agreements. I'm just talking about that first issue.
15: Thank you, Justice Cote. And so to that point, um, I note that we don't say that a receiver can never be bound by an arbitration clause in a contract. If a receiver has adopted or performed a contract of an insolvent debtor, then the receiver is bound by that contract, including by the arbitration clause. And so this case need not stand for the proposition that a receiver is never bound by an arbitration clause in a pre-receivership contract of the debtor. But with respect to your point that Section 3 says that the receiver can exercise the rights of the parties, that doesn't bind the receiver to those rights. The receiver's court-ordered authority as well as its obligation is to collect accounts receivable and i submit that that does not mean that the receiver is bound by the contracts if it has not adopted or performed them could i just yeah, it, throw it another
12: little it, wrench into this please how does section nine of the order the receiving order which we talked about what's your take on section 72 one of the bankruptcy act in its relation to section nine if i could just get you to Help me with that. 72.1, the provisions of this act shall not be deemed to abrogate or supersede the substantive provisions of any other law or statute relating to property and civil rights that are not in conflict with this act. And then it goes on to talk about the trustee can avail him or herself. But the first part of that, I'm just wondering what your take is on that.
15: Thank you, Justice Moldaver. With respect to Section 72, we submit that there is no issue of paramountcy and nor is there any conflict with the legislation in that if the court finds by exercising its statutory jurisdiction pursuant to Section 243, that the arbitration clause is inoperative or incapable of being performed, and such a finding would be consistent with the authorities as to what those terms mean, Inoperative, meaning that a court has ordered that the arbitration clause is inoperative and incapable of being performed, meaning that there is no capacity to carry out the arbitration agreement, then I submit that there is no issue of paramountcy or prohibition by Section 72 because of the fact that Section 15 Sub 2 of the Arbitration Act specifically contemplates the court making a finding that an arbitration clause is inoperative or incapable of being performed. So it's consistent with the court's favor of harmonious interpretations of a federal and provincial statute, which is preferred over an interpretation that creates a conflict. Okay,
0: I'm, I'm gonna come back to perhaps a question I've asked too many times, but by virtue of what did the arbitration agreement become inoperative.
15: Justice Rowe, uh, I submit that that goes to the point of the case-by-case analysis that should be undertaken by the court and that Justice Iyer of the B.C. Supreme Court did undertake... No, no, no undertake. but
0: I, I'm going I'm to insist on this. Yes, I understand it's a case-by-case analysis, but did it arise by operation of the receivership agreement or did it arise only from the decision of uh, the bc uh, supreme court
15: um if i understand the question correctly justice roe in terms of uh how did the inoperability or in- incapability performance arise? I submit that the BC Supreme Court, acting in its capacity as a bankruptcy court in the circumstances where this is a national receiver appointed pursuant to Section 243, considered uh, all of the circumstances, including the cost and inefficiency uh, of I'm, multiple I'm, proceedings. I'm not, I'm not
0: going to let go with this. of want I want a clear answer, clear I'm, i and I'm going to ask it again. I, I understand that that was the determination, that it was more efficient, that it was a, a better approach, but, but is, is, the, is it rendered inoperative by virtue of the receivership order or by the determination made by the BC Supreme Court judge?
15: Thank you, Justice Rowan and my apologies that I didn't understand the question properly uh, prior to this. Um, I submit that it was as a result of the Chamber's judges decision that the court determined that the arbitration clauses are inoperative or incapable of being performed.
8: And their source of their authority was statutory.
15: The source of the authority was statutory jurisdiction under section 243 and also section 15 sub two. There is no contravention of legislative will. We submit that in the alternative, the court have also had the um, uh, inherent jurisdiction. Thank you, Justice uh, uh, Brown.
7: I'm confused now Ms. Meyer because I'd (laughs) I'd understood what you said. It was that uh, in response to my questions, it was that it was a result of the decision of the receiver to cease to perform a contract of the debtor under 3C, which was uh, granted under statutory power and the receipt terms of the receivership order. So it's the decision of the receiver, the results in it being an operative that may be ratified by the court on uh, a motion to uh, refer the matter to arbitration, but actually it's the, it's the, it's the decision of the uh, receiver, but then ratified by the court in saying, I'm not going to send this to arbitration because it's uh, it's inoperative, uh, and quite apart from whether that matter is even proper before the court, properly before the court in view of Article Nine.
15: Justice Jamal, thank you for the question. I submit that the court can dismiss this appeal on any of the grounds that I've asserted, and that if it refers to the doctrine of separability and examines the arbitration clauses in issue separately from the rest of the contracts and finds that by its conduct, the receiver has disclaimed those arbitration agreements by opposing the application to stay the litigation, that on that basis, that, uh, yes, I suppose it's the receiver, in fact, that's disclaimed the arbitration agreements. But on the basis of the exercise of statutory jurisdiction, it's the court that makes that determination, it consistent with its statutory jurisdiction under Section 243, but also Section 15 sub 2 of the Arbitration Act. To sum up my submissions, uh, justices, We say that this court should not permit section 15 of the Arbitration Act to preclude the receiver from following what the appellants concede is the most efficient process to resolve the claims for outstanding accounts receivable, where the receiver's court ordered duty is to collect assets of the debtors in the most efficient manner possible, so as to maximize recoveries to the creditors. This isn't about accommodating the receiver's preference for litigation over multiple arbitrations or convenience as the appellants assert. Is a proper exercise of the court's residual statutory jurisdiction or in the alternative inherent jurisdiction under the BIA in consideration of the facts, the purpose of a receivership and of the BIA and the interests of all stakeholders and is consistent with the court's jurisdiction under Section 15 of the Arbitration Act. We submit the correct approach as a case-by-case analysis. As I've said, I submit that this appeal should be dismissed with costs of this and the proceedings below against the appellants. Thank you. Thank Those you. are my submissions.
16: Thank you, Ms. Meyer. Kibben Jackson. Chief Justice, Justices of the Court. I'm appearing today for the Insolvency Institute of Canada or the IIC. It has a mandate among others uh, to safeguard the efficacy of Canada's insolvency regimes. And it's that mandate which is the basis for the IIC's uh, seeking leave to intervene on this appeal. And at the outset, to be clear, the IIC has not said and will not say that arbitration has no place in the context of insolvencies. As has been said by at least uh, one of my friends today, often the interests uh, of proceeding with arbitration are harmonious with the objectives of insolvency proceedings and the act itself, which is efficient and and timely and less costly uh, dispute resolutions. The IIC, however, is concerned to confirm the court's jurisdiction to oversee and direct their own proceedings, and that's to facilitate the expeditious and efficient and economical administration of estates. And we say that in appropriate circumstances, that includes the authority to override otherwise valid arbitration clauses. Um, The IIC doesn't take a position on the outcome of this appeal. Uh, Its position is more consistent. With the decision of the Chamber's Judge, Justice Iyer, in this case, though we differ with respect to the source of the court's jurisdiction. Uh, Her Ladyship described it as inherent jurisdiction, and we say that's properly described as statutory jurisdiction. Um, what I would like to do, perhaps having heard some of the questions with the benefit of that today, I would like to explain how the IIC submits that these matters should be resolved in the in the ordinary course and to the extent that it's ordinary in the context of an insolvency the party that wishes to proceed with a claim in the face of an arbitration proceeding should in our view appear before the uh, supervising insolvency court for directions if if on the one hand if the party is not the receiver not the trustee if it's a claimant if it's a creditor and it wishes to proceed with arbitration it would need as has been suggested to have the stay lifted to permit that and that application to lift the stay to permit that should be brought to the supervising insolvency court on the other hand if a receiver or a trustee wishes to proceed with a claim in the civil courts or otherwise but not by way of arbitration in the face of an arbitration agreement that application should similarly be brought by the court's officer to the supervising insolvency court for a determination as to whether the arbitration agreement should be upheld in the context of those proceedings, which will be determined on a case-by-case basis, again, with a view to the competing policy considerations. And we accept uh, what has been said, including Ms. by the Chamber's… Oh, I'm sorry, yes.
5: I'm sorry, Mr. Jackson. And this, is, and this is because that procedure that you described that the receiver should follow, I mean to file a motion for directions uh, because he is facing an arbitration agreement and he wants to take a, lawsuit, a civil lawsuit. It is because the issuance of a receivership order does not automatically render the arbitration agreement inoperative
16: so i i accept that and i agree and i and, and with my friend uh, ms meyer and i think that's in response to justice rose question uh, uh, the iic would not submit that the issuance of a receivership order per se renders inoperative that agreement or any and in fact a bankruptcy would not have the same effect necessarily and so uh and so that would have to be determined by the supervising insolvency court whether that agreement should be honored or or rendered inoperative yes and so we accept uh what has been suggested by the Chambers judge and by other counsels uh, today is that it, it would be um, an, ex- an exercise of jurisdiction by the court, which would be exercised in, I think, I'm not sure if the term was exceptional circumstances, but, but it would have to be circumstances which clearly dictate that proceeding with an arbitration is, would frustrate or be contrary to the objectives of the BIA, such that it would interfere with the efficient administration of the insolvency estate.
5: And Mr. Jackson, I have another question because Ms. Myers says that the authority uh, to do that, I mean to to stay in arbitration agreement, let's say, uh, is in uh, Section 15.2 of the Arbitration Act and Section 243 of the Bankruptcy Act, and alternatively, she says 183. You say in your factum that it is both 243 and 183. Uh, do you have a preference for one, or is it, is it the two provisions? I just want to know your opinion on that.
16: Well, I, 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 it 183, I think, is more general in the sense that it would apply to the the Act in the context of both or frankly, in any of the scenarios which might arise under that Act, which could be a bankruptcy, it would be a receivership, it would include proposal proceedings under the Act, and so those would be the sort of several heads that arise. Uh, Section 243 is specific to receiverships, of course, national receiverships, and the language in both 183 and 243 is broad. Uh, it is, in our view, they, are, uh, they overlap to the extent it applies to receiverships, uh, in direct answer to your question, uh, Justice Cote. Thank you. Um, and I think having having explained our our views as to how these matters would proceed i, I i'd just quickly like to touch on a little bit more about the court 's jurisdiction i I with the limited time i have uh, i 'm going to To touch on the the very broad jurisdiction conferred on courts under the BIA, it is statutory jurisdiction, Uh, it is informed by the remedial objectives of the Act, and I can only commend the court to the decision uh, in in this court's decision in Sam Levy and ASCO Mining, which is at tab five of the condensed book, and specifically it would be uh, paragraph 38 of that, which just discusses that it's necessarily broad to ensure the objectives are met. And that is specifically in reference to section 183 sub 1. With respect to subsection, or sorry, section 243 and the appointment of a national receiver, uh, that that section hasn't been given any particular consideration by this court. It has by the Ontario Court of Appeal recently in Dianore, which uh, commented that, that its view was that section 243 conferred an equally broad jurisdiction particularly considering the language, the open-ended language at the end of section 243 1C, which uh, confers on the court the authority to authorize a receiver to do uh, that which is advisable and it couldn't be broader put. Um, the court in Dianor, which again I would commend that decision to the court, is, is fairly good about explaining the history of that. It points out, uh, in fact, and this is perhaps in some uh, defense of Justice Eyer, who relied on inherent jurisdiction. I think, properly speaking, Her Ladyship in, or, or Justice Eyer in that case was speaking about statutory jurisdiction. And the two terms are often used interchangeably, um, I think, uh, incorrectly, of course, but at, in, in in relative terms, uh, it's only, I think, in, in recent years, perhaps I'm aging myself a bit, to say that that the distinction between statutory jurisdiction and inherent jurisdiction in the context of insolvency proceedings has been properly understood. And if you look at, at the Dianor case, the court there uh, makes the same sort of defense of Justice Farley and his decision in the Kura matter which is also in our materials, where he refers to inherent jurisdiction in relation to su- Section 47 in the interim receivership. And so it is statutory, and I think that is largely widely accepted, and that is the jurisdiction we say is governing in this case. Um, and so, again, with receiverships, I, I just, the, the, it's, the act, the actual Section 243 is spartan. It only talks about collect, effectively taking possession of and preserving assets. It doesn't even speak to liquidating assets. It doesn't provide, contrary to uh, the submissions of my friend uh, for the appellants, it doesn't even provide for a stay. There is no mandatory stay of proceedings. In the context of a receivership that is an order made at the discretion of the court relying on its broad statutory jurisdiction in fact most of the receivership model receivership orders include provisions in reliance on the broad statutory jurisdiction and we say that jurisdiction extends to uh, being able to make orders which would override uh, provisions of contracts which frustrate the objectives of the act and that again is not foreign to insolvency proceedings in canada Um, we can look at beginning with ipso facto clauses which cause things to happen upon the insolvency or bankruptcy of a a debtor uh, those are void uh, because they are contrary to the policies underlying the bia that's commonly held Uh, and in the context of arbitration agreements under the ccaa there's several authorities which the courts below recognized uh, authorized the courts uh, under the broad discretion granted them under the ccaa and in particular section 11 to override, uh, to allow uh, debtors to proceed with claims outside of arbitrations in the face of arbitration agreements where circumstances dictate. And it's a similar, although the court came to a contrary conclusion in the facts of the case, the Quebec decision at ETI has the same view as to the application of the court's jurisdiction and the single control model. And so we say it's not foreign and it's not problematic. These are things to be considered by the court. Um, One... One, one thing I wish to discuss is which court should hear it? And I realize I'm running up against time. The The British Columbia, or the Supreme Court of British Columbia that heard this, this that the decision was under appeal from ultimately, is it heard that, I think it was proper to hear it. It is vested with the jurisdiction under section 183 to, to make that decision. I think the preferred, and this is perhaps a good reason for guidance from this court, the preferred forum for that application is the supervising insolvency court. Uh, and we'd say there's a reason for that, that court, and generally speaking, has provided a great deal of deference because of its knowledge of the history of the proceedings, the, the interests of the various stakeholders, uh, and the impact of what is being proposed on the proceedings and the stakeholders, which is the nuance that that court is is uniquely qualified uh, to consider. And that is why we say that's the appropriate forum for this determination, right?
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. Any reply, Mr. De Groot?
3: Just briefly, uh, Chief Justice, first, with respect to uh, the, the respondent was having you look at the Supreme Court of British Columbia decision, which is at tab one of the appellant's condensed book, and I just want to be clear on what the, the factual finding was with respect to um, the, the the inefficiency, if we may call it that. And if we turn to paragraph 51 of that decision of, these, of Justice Iyer, here she states, quote, There is no evidence that enforcing the arbitration clauses will derail the insolvency proceedings or fundamentally threaten their integrity, nor is there evidence that the defendants are using the arbitration clauses for some ulterior purpose damaging to the plaintiffs. And that's the finding of fact that is made. But what the court then goes on to do is a balancing exercise in which the interests of the appellates um, were downplayed. And the only issue that came up was the issues of the the, the respondents and this is at page paragraph 60 which we had looked at before and it's the concluding p- paragraph where the court states the absence of any prejudice to the defendants is an important distinguishing factor and we submit and we put this in our brief uh, or our factum the appellate's pactum at paragraph 40 34 citing the chalmers and dell decision that arbitration rights are substantive rights and so We'd say first that there was no authority to engage in the balancing uh, exercise, but even then, the factual finding is that there is no chaos suggested here that would derail the insolvency proceedings, and the court failed to reflect the substantive procedural rights. So so
8: are, are you saying that those later findings that you've just referred us to are somehow inconsistent? with the findings in paragraph five? Are you saying that she wasn't entitled to make the findings in paragraph five, that that was a balancing she wasn't entitled to undertake? What, what where does all this go?
3: W- my point here is that the finding of fact that this would somehow create insolvency chaos is not the finding of fact in this Well, But decision. that's not the
8: finding. I mean, the finding is that that will entail multiple proceedings uh, and increased costs. And and she made that finding, She records herself having made that finding on the basis of a concession.
3: Yeah, and in relation to the concession, that there was, it is, you know, four lawsuits would obviously be more uh, inconvenient, but there were suggestions uh, which were noted by the court that the defendants uh, noted that they could be streamlined. And I've emphasized here as well, that procedures like that would best be decided by the arbitration, arbitrators with respect to consolidation. Just having regard to my time, Um, The receiver has also emphasized that the source of the authority is section 243 um, of the inoperativeness of the arbitration agreements. I I can advise the court this has never been prior to this court, was never argued or addressed. Um, At the end of the day, I want to be clear. It's the appellant's position that if there was a core bankruptcy matter through which the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act had expressed legislation that created a conflict with the Arbitration Act, That would be an issue of paramountcy. But in this case, the two acts can be interpreted alongside one another, but the term inoperative in the arbitration act has been recognized as going to the arbitration agreement itself and going to the intention of preserving space for arbitration. And what the receiver and respondents are relying on is they're relying on a purpose created under Section 243 to argue that that purpose should overturn the normal interpretation of the Arbitration Act. And just in relation to that, the fact that this hasn't been argued before is an important consideration. And I will turn you briefly to Lemire Lake Logging, which is at tab nine of the appellate's condensed book of authorities. And at paragraph 45 the the full statement here of the authority and jurisdiction of section 243 is this is in our respectful view insufficient evidence for casting section 243's purpose so widely as the court explained in copa at paragraph 68 clear proof of purpose is required to successfully invoke federal paramountcy on the basis of frustration of federal purpose And that's really what's being argued here. It's it's necessarily the case that what the the respondents are arguing is that section 243 would be frustrated. The totality of the evidence presented by amicus does not meet this high burden. While cases and secondary sources can obviously be helpful in identifying a provision's purpose, the sources cited by amicus merely establish promptness and timeliness as general considerations in bankruptcy and receivership process. And the court goes on to say, what the purpose is is simple and narrow, the establishment of a national receiver. And I would just state quickly that both the B.C. Supreme Court and the B.C. Court of Appeal recognized the problems of the, the paramountcy issue. Uh, the B.C. Supreme Court is at paragraph 42 and the B.C. Court of Appeal is at paragraphs 15, 16 and 20. And with my time, I will stop there. Thank you very
1: much. So I'd like to thank counsel for their uh, submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you very much.